Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is a podcast where mostly we read books over 500 pages, and then Bill and I talk about it. We're old buddies. We talk about books even when we're not doing a podcast. It's really that sincere. Um, This episode, however, is honestly usually my favorite episode where we just kind of talk about our year in reading. What do we read? How do we enjoy reading it, and what we want to talk about the other person having read as well? We actually share Excel sheets of the books that we've read, um, and I'm laughing because <laughs> my Excel sheet really is just like chronological order of the books that I read through the year. And Bill's spreadsheet is this like beautiful accountant's masterpiece of like the statistics that he has accomplished. And it's really every year it's like I should add some of his statistics, and I I just never will. But it's admirable. Um, that sounds about right, right? Yes, yes, Bill. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I I think that any any takeaway which is Bill is admirable. I can't disagree with that. Yeah, that's, that's okay. So, <laughs> I yeah. just didn't want to. No, it is true that it's. <laughs> It, it, another person might say that your list is all the information that actually matters and mine is obsessive and weird. That would be another way to look at it. <laughs> you know, I almost brought it up um, right before we started recording the podcast that is there is there a way in your list to see the, cr- uh, the chronological order? Do you have that? Yeah, I mean, you can sort by... Uh, oh, date so finished. I have two yep. lists. Okay, sorry, thing, I, I just saw have two it. lists. Yeah. I have another <laughs> list which is just chronological order of everything I read, and that includes movies and video games and stuff. This one is just prose comics and magazines like uh literary magazines and yeah you just sort you select the, the yeah the i didn't you see sort it by that man so i so. i was thinking i missed that i just didn't scroll over far enough i missed that you not only have it chronologically you have the yeah the date man that's beautiful i like i like seeing that way okay anyway okay well welcome to the big read cast uh if you're a new listener happy to have it's a you podcast if... about spreadsheets <laughs> <It's> <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly about how to sort spreadsheets and, and Google um, Sheets. Anyway, so, you know, we're going to talk about the books we've read throughout the year. Um, we'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, you know, we're on Twitter, at Big Readcast, I think, and mostly also tweet at Bill. Um, I'm not on enough. Anyway, so this was kind of a weird year, I think, for more than just reading, obviously. But for me, at least, I, I actually kind of had a weird year reading you know, I have two young kids. Um, I quit my job before the pandemic really set in as far as the lockdowns and so forth. And so some of what happened this year may have happened anyway to me with my own habits. But I, I, I more than any other year, I had a hard time, especially early in the pandemic, really focusing <laughs> on finishing books. And I'm always a little you know, chaotic. Uh, I I have a hard time, I think, being systematic with any reading project. Like I know you, Bill, have like selected an author to read through and then you've just read through them. I've committed to doing that with many authors and I've never done it in one year. I just can't for some reason. Anyway, so I thought it might be interesting just to talk about kind of two aspects of this weird year. One of which is that, I, I don't know, I had a harder time focusing than I usually do. And I found it looked like my list maybe tended to some more genre fantasy stuff than it usually does. And then on the other side of things, um, it was also a year of, you know, kind of political upheaval, you know, sort of the, you know, the the protests and the riots and the various things happening across the country. And there was a lot of, 
you know, I think good and maybe some annoying pressure to like change what you're reading and to read things that you wouldn't normally read, um, which I, which I tried to do, to be honest. And so I don't know, I just wanted to start there and see what, what your year was like amidst both the political and the kind of Corona, you know, (laughs) twin forks of anxiety. Yeah, so it was also a weird year for me because this was the first year where I was working as a public defender. I technically started at the very end of last year, but it was literally December 16th, right? So this this year I was working a a much more stressful and difficult job than I had in the last few years and and really arguably than I ever have in my life. Um, Yeah. Certainly stressful in a very sort of personally convicting way. Like I've had other stressful jobs where sort of didn't care, right? It was just hard. Uh, <laughs> but um, so I, I think in a lot of ways, I was reading less this year than I might have. Uh, and also there were times when I couldn't focus on a book to save my soul. I don't think I read a single book in the month of March or like only one or two in the month of July. Uh, so even as like in April and May, I read a lot of books, which would make sense for a pandemic, right? There were a few other times when I, I just couldn't focus on a book at all. So I think I had a very sporadic year. I worked up to about the same number of books as I've read the last few years, but it was really... Uh, not a not a consistent read, and I, I think you had mentioned this to me earlier that you you felt like you had like ten books going at a time. Yeah, uh, and I didn't have quite that many, but I I had four or five books going at a time, which is more than I usually have in the past. I've usually had you know two or three at the most, um, and uh, that is a bit. It's kind of fun because you can procrastinate reading one book with another book, which is a particularly weird kind of self-deception. Like, just stop doing that. Just read a book that you want to read. <laughs> no one cares if you read this book. Um, and also, yeah, I uh, I would say that I read a lot more. I mean, I always, I think I always read more genre fiction than you do, just because I'm. That's just I think that's sort of the way that works. Again, yeah. not that. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think I've said before that Joel is the lit guy and I'm the genre guy is both true and not true because it's correct that that's the emphasis. But I think that misses that it misses that Joel reads a lot of genre fiction is really what it misses. I don't actually read a lot of <laughs> fiction, <laughs> but I read some. Uh, <laughs> I have a problem where I tend to try to buy my friend Joel a book for Christmas. And the problem is that all of the books that I usually like really liked are books Joel has already read, uh, which is a problem I have. We'll talk about that later, maybe. The point <laughs> Uh, so I read a lot of genre stuff, but I also read more political stuff this year. I did that both. Uh, I didn't actually read too many that were very deliberately, like specifically focused on the specific issues we were dealing with. But as I think we've talked before on the podcast, I've been going through a political maturation or or whatever you want to call it. And so I've realized I need to go back and read some of these texts that are important. So I was going through and reading more, you know, socialist radical literature because that's fun. It's fun to read it in public in Detroit Lakes, which I guess I didn't actually get to do very much <laughs> yeah. this year because of the pandemic. But that's it true. is still fun to read, you know. At your uh, local dive bar. Read Bakunin or Kropotkin or somebody like that at the dive bar in the most conservative place in Minnesota. Uh, no one knows what it means because none of them can read. I'm actually, sorry, I don't mean that. They're no. excellent. <laughs> but no, there is something very safe about reading like Bakunin versus – and I read this just like – I didn't like have a – I have a text, but um, I actually – I feel like I'm so simple in my life that I've, I've read both of these before, I think. But I went back and I read um, MLK's – why we can't wait, which is like a collection of his letters and essays, uh, mostly about 1963, um, and kind of that specific. Um, he calls it the Negro Revolution, which I really like as a a model that it's a revolution, kind of in the same step as like you know the initial revolution against Britain, and then we have the kind of Civil War as a revolutionary 
reorganization of the country, and then he sees 1963 as a another revolutionary reorganization of the country, which is is sort of like your very basic stuff, you know. But it was kind of it's always very to me like there's a weird hope sometimes, as well as a weird despair, and reading something by like the most famous civil rights activist, you know, from it's 50 years ago now, or almost more than that, of course, right? It's almost 60 years ago, um, this text that I'm reading from him. And yet like the relevance of what he is talking about is both very discouraging, but there was something encouraging in the sense of like, there is a history to draw on and there are models to draw on to try and accomplish whatever we want to accomplish. You know, like I, I'm someone who I think is very weird in my politics. I don't want to be maybe lumped in with anyone too much, to be honest at this point, but you know, the protests, especially what the explicit goal of it was to bring attention to and change the dynamics of policing and mostly urban centers of America, you know, that, that I've always liked that agenda, <laughs> um, as far as I can tell. And I, I don't know. And so it was interesting to kind of read MLK and kind of get back to the basics. And I did the same thing weirdly, like in my own journey, kind of leftward. And I, I would say, like, again, my own journey to, to weird places where I have a lot of leftist sympathies about some stuff. You know, I, I actually went back and just, like, reread the Communist Manifesto. You know what I mean? Like, I kept it very basic in some ways because I wanted to kind of ground myself in that stuff. But the other book that I, I probably was inspired to read, which I've had on my shelf for a long time, is I read um, John Edgar Weidman's uh, My Brother's Keeper. I think that's... I always mess his title up because it could just be Brother's Keeper. According to your spreadsheet, brothers, it's called it's Brothers, brothers and, and Keepers. Yeah, it's Brothers and Keepers. That's why I always mess it up. So yeah, John Edgar Weidman's Brothers and Keepers, um, which was a really good book. His, his brother was basically part of like a robbery and he was... Um, you know, I'm like I'm talking to a lawyer right now. I'm gonna mess up all the terminology, but he, he <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was part of a murder essentially. He didn't pull the trigger, but he was part of a murder, and he got sent to prison for that. And it was really weird because at the time that these events go down, Weidman, who's a you know one of the great, um, I think, experimental, smart ass novelists of the 20th century, he um he is living in Laramie, Wyoming. And like they go, he talks about going to Fort Collins and this is all kind of my area of life. Um, but he has just, I, for me, like he has one of the most visceral descriptions of what it means to visit someone in prison. Um, and like kind of the ways in which visitors are made to feel like prisoners themselves in order to talk to their relatives. And it's a lot more than that. You know, he goes into all of the, the, the things you would imagine their childhood and sort of, you know, his struggles with his, what, you know, loving his brother, but trying to like come to terms with what there's done, yada, yada. But like the actual experience of having someone you love in jail, that, it, that was quite well done. I thought, um, and I would have read it at some point, but I think I was spurred to read it this year uh, in a way that I wouldn't have maybe been otherwise. So that, uh, that, uh, that brings me to one of the questions I wanted to ask, which is, were there any other sort of themes to your reading? I mean, I think you've mentioned one, which is to try to read, uh, sort of civil rights adjacent stuff, I guess, to put it in a box. 
Um, but were there any other themes to your reading? I mean, I, I know I tend to read in a very scattershot way, but often in a year I can say, well, here's the five books I read that were all this kind of thing that I bought at the same time because this is the weird mood I was in. So were there any other sort of themes to your reading, any particular through lines? You know, I think I wanted there to be. I, I think in the end I, I kept getting off track with every every effort I made to have a theme. Like, So I began the, the year with um with Lloyd Alexander's uh, Chronicles of Prydain, which I really liked. And I was like, oh, I should just sprint through some more, you know, fiction of that ilk that I haven't read, read before. But I, I think whatever kind of tra- trajectory I had at the beginning got knocked off track by the pandemic. And as I look through my list, I'm trying to think, like, if there's any actual, like, coherence to it. And it, it seems crazier than ever as far as <laughs> like so i have so like in one in one stretch i like i have nicomachi and ethics the unwomanly face of war by svetlana alexevich an oral history of women combatants um from the soviet union in world war Two, and then i have kate atkinson's when will there be good news and then i have marina warner's from the beast of the blonde which is like this history of basically fairy tales and fairy tale tellers and then it's like Zadie Smith. I, I, and I just, it keeps going like that. Like there's like Dorothy Sayers um, cycle of plays on the life of Christ. And then there's Gene Wolfe with his fantasy novel. And then there's James Baldwin. I don't know. I, I was going to try and make up a theme and looking at retrospect, but in retrospect, it actually looks less planned than it usually does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which was definitely not my goal. My goal was to read a lot more philosophy, which I, I guess I did manage that with Charles Taylor and some other things. But it definitely got knocked off track. Um, how about you? Do you feel like any themes emerged, even looking backwards? So I had a couple. Uh, so one, like I said, was sort of uh, socialist or leftist politics. So I read some of that kind of things. Like I read David Graeber's uh, Bullshit Jobs, Yeah, which is uh, it's a really good time. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a good book. Uh, it's a good time. He's, he's a very, uh, he was, I should say. He died this year, I think, uh, pretty tragically. He wasn't very old. Uh, but he wrote a, uh, the book is very fun. It's kind of bloggy. The original essay was a blog post. Right. And he makes, I think, a compelling argument. I'm not 100% sure about his methodology, although he's pretty honest about it because he'll say, well, I, I, you know, I did this survey and it turns out that a lot of people have these bullshit jobs. And Well, the survey was like a Twitter poll he did. <laughs> and you're like, well, I mean, okay, one, I mean, he says that, so he's not hiding it. But yeah. also, like, I'm not sure if a, the sorts of people who not only follow David Graeber on Twitter but follow David Graeber on Twitter and respond to his Twitter polls. I'm not sure that's a like a, a very. I think there might be some sampling errors. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I'm not, I'm not sure that's a, a good base for any sort of sociological project. But I do think he's still got a, a good point throughout that, that we do have all these jobs which are essentially again he uses the phrase bullshit jobs. I'm not going to get the exact definition, but it's a job which is pointless and which the employee knows is pointless, but which the employee feels as though he has to pretend isn't pointless, right? Yeah. So it's not the same thing as just like a sinecure, 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 sinecure. That one, you know that word? I do. Which is basically when you get you get you get paid a certain amount of money basically for existing, right? Because but but that is clear, right? That is an explicit like I'm paying you because I like you, right? Right. This is. No one cares if you go to work, but if you ever said that out loud, you would get fired, right? Yeah. And I have done one or two of those jobs, and I think a lot of us, particularly in the sort of people who've lived in white-collar lives, have. And uh, his book, that book's about not only this phenomenon and trying to come up with a definition for a particular, you know, what is a bullshit job rather than just a bad job, right? Like being a dishwasher in a kitchen where your boss screams at you is a bad job, but it's not a bullshit job. What right. you're doing is washing You're actually dishes, quite right? needed, like yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's very clear what you're doing. If you don't show up to work, it's bad, right? Right. <laughs> the, the restaurant falls apart. Or I think his actual language is the difference between a bullshit job and a shit job, which I think is very good. <laughs> but anyway, his point is not only these jobs exist, but like, what does that do to the sort of psychology of uh, America and the UK or Germany, like the, the West, right? Or really the developed world. What does that do to the developed world's general psychology and understanding of the concept of work? And what does this mean about the idea that capitalism is supposed to make things more efficient if what it actually does is make up a bunch of make work, which was right. supposed to be a Soviet thing, right? Like yeah. you're being paid to dig ditches and then fill them back up again because we think everyone should have a job. You know, so, hey, we, that's the Soviets. They do that with their non-efficient planned economy, but we would never do that except that's what, that's what we're these doing jobs are. For corporations, yeah. So, yeah, so you know what a how widespread an issue it is is I, I think harder to tell from the book again because I think his his statistical work is I, again it, it's it's it feels weird to be critical about it because he doesn't pretend it's anything other than what it is but then he will also sometimes say so I mean if thirty percent of people are like well okay <laughs> I don't know if you can do that David <laughs> well especially but it's a good when, book you know what was, what's funny with like that idea is that I think. Um, I think it sold pretty well that book actually, and I, I think of course that like the idea immediately resonates with me and with with people I know. Yeah. And not only because so because I think even more than, um, on oh, this might be our first podcast, Bill, where we might have to just put the explicit tag on it or whatever because I don't know how we're gonna bleep this many bullshits. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna actually ask about that. Should we? Because we usually bleep words that are much harder. No, than, I think like, uh, for just yeah. kind of a stylistic way, we don't really need to. We I don't, don't think there's a I lot know. of ten year olds listening to our podcast. But, yeah, but yeah, I don't think we should bleep the book title. I no, think that, that feels no, like I, that's I don't think we should either. Yeah, yeah. but um, <laughs> well, but what's funny is so I, I think what resonates is that I I definitely I don't think I've had a job where like no one cared if I showed up at all, but I've I've certainly had jobs where on Friday. I read articles the entire day or for like one month in the summer, I read articles for most of the day, the whole summer, you know, like for that whole month. And it does seem to be like, yeah, you're just a warm body filling a space. And that's sort of the, the, the contract we have. Um, but it, what, sorry, what, what it really reminds me of a little bit, I'm going to mess up all the terminology, but you know, apparently this year back in January, I read Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which I, I remember, I think, some of his better ideas, but I can't believe that that was this year and not four or five years ago. Um, <laughs> but he talks about, you know, the, the creation of basically a corporate bureaucracy that people want to level sort of bureaucratic problem claims like you said, like at the left, right? That That's a government issue. And he goes quite far to say, like, when you call someone to get help, for example, with Comcast, there's no center, right? There's this kind of endless labyrinth of people who can almost help you and none of whom can be blamed for the policies they're enforcing, right? So there's no, like, center that you can ever see. And I feel like that is at the heart of bullshit jobs as well, from what you're saying, but also from the concept in general. You know, there is this lack of center that we're all sort of trying to navigate. But yeah, so what what what, what other themes emerged? Um, I think I can guess one of them, but... So, yeah, I mean, so I, I read some other books in that, which I don't I don't know if I want to talk about too much. I did I did read the, uh, the Conquest of Bread by Peter Kropotkin. I read Why You Should Be a Socialist by Nathan J. Robinson, which I love NJR a lot, but he's not as good at book-length stuff. Yeah. He's better when he's being mean to other people. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> is, you know, some of us are just built to be hatchet men. Which of those, like, in that area, did you, did you kind of, do you think you'll take away most with you? You know, like, which of them stood out the most in retrospect? From that, uh, so, I mean, probably bullshit jobs. 
let me think for a second. What else? It was kind of it was kind of disorganized. Like some of them were like 19th century Russian texts, right. and some of them were things yeah. that came out last year. Yeah. So I I'm trying to. Oh no! I, I guess I don't think of this as the same thing. But in terms of politics, I read Heather Ann Thompson's Blood in the Water this yeah. year, which is a history of the Attica prison uprising and is a work of you know tremendous uh, skill. It won the Pulitzer, I think. Um, uh, it's a heck of a thing. Uh, it breaks down. Not only everything that happened at Attica and led up to Attica, and by at Attica, I mean and the actual prison riot, right? Right. Uh, and when they took over the prison. But then all of the various lawsuits afterwards and criminal prosecution as to who was being prosecuted for what and who wasn't being prosecuted for what. Yeah. And exactly like when the civil lawsuits later. And it's a, it's a really impressive book. I think I read it in one day and I, I like I needed to take time off of work. I couldn't. But like I, <laughs> I was like, I need to <laughs> digest this one for a minute. Point where I think I sometimes forget that I read it this year just because it was, I don't know, it hit me in the face pretty hard and I had to like take some time to think about it. Uh, it's a heck of a thing. Um, she does a very good job making some very unpleasant uh, subject matter very clear without ever shying away from the, you know, the pretty serious horror that was done to a lot of these yeah. folks, uh, both during and after. I mean, because there's not really, it's just kind of a mess, right? Like, obviously, the, the real villain here is the people who were running the prison and the people who handled the riots afterwards. There's really no question about that if you read the thing. But, you know, the prisoners, of course, did some pretty bad things at the same time, too, right? So it's a, it's just kind of a messy thing. And, and one of the, I don't know, I'm not going to talk about it too much more because I think I would talk about it for 30 minutes. But <laughs> that's the one that's going to stick with me the most. Um, that's a good answer. Yeah. And uh, on Twitter, uh, somebody said, what would you do on, if Netflix gave you, you know, a bunch of money to make one 10-episode series about history, what would you do? And I said that, and Heather Ann Thompson found it and liked my post. So What's up? that's important. It is. I got a like from a Pulitzer Prize winning author. No, it is. I mean, honestly, like that's one of the the cheesy aspects of Twitter that will always be bizarre to me. Is I, I I obviously had the same thing where like you just say someone's name or you mention something, and then they find you. It's like oh like well like so actually I had an not an exchange but basically an exchange with Adam Roberts who I read this year, and um, he's you know the most prolific human in the history of humans. Um, <laughs> you know, he's like a professor at Cambridge. He like publishes regularly on scholarship. You know, he edits these giant anthologies of like steampunk and whatever. And he also pumps out like a a novel a year. And at least I've the one novel I've read of his, it's a very high quality novel. You know, it's not fair. But yeah, he's some random guy who's really incredible. Who like one time we had a little exchange, which I honestly. That remains sort of the the cool little frisson of Twitter, I think, and I I think you know maybe as much as it's based in sort of a uh, a fanboying aspect, it's it is pretty cool. You know, there wasn't a lot of access to these kind of people outside of fan mail, and now it's just like, oh, I typed your name into this little box, and then you found it and liked it. Pretty crazy. I used to uh, <laughs> the writer. For, there's a TV show called The Booth at the End. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, have I made you watch that? Yeah. So uh, it's like the only thing this guy has ever written. And like once a year, I would be like, hey, remember that? It's a really good show because I'm really I really like it a lot. <laughs> and he would always find it like he was clearly name searching it for right. like months and months and months. And it's probably not healthy, but it was kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I did learn. So the well, other theme I read this year. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, I was going to say the other since we're talking about Twitter real quick. Well, I, I published an article that was like not a big deal at all, but it was sort of like almost a history of radio theater made by evangelicals. And, um, but what was funny is like, I, like, I'm so bad at like searching for people talking about it that it took me like a couple of, cause I was just curious, like, you know, if anyone was reading it and it took me like an embarrassing amount of time to be like, oh, I should just, 
I should put the its URL into Twitter in like <laughs> qu- you know, in like quotes. Like, and I'm not like bad with technology is the worst part, but I just I've done it so little that kind of thing. Cause I'm, I I don't want to do it, but it was like I I get why people do it though because um like there were some things that were said about the piece that I thought were dumb, but it was still like even the dumb stuff was sort of like almost um flattering. You know, it was like oh you. You, you're talking about me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, this is, yep. this is a little jolt time happening over here. Um, but, yeah, but it was funny. Like, I just, like, from that, you know, Grandpa Joel aspect of, now, how how do I, if they don't say my name, how would I know if you're talking about the article? Um, <laughs> but, yeah, other other trends that you have. Uh, I, it seems like maybe there is a, which you mentioned before, it seems like maybe there is a uh, Napoleonic <laughs> sailing yeah. Book. Yeah. So that's the, the, the other big, and I think it's only like six books actually, but the other one is like historical adventure fiction, particularly if it happened in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, I read, again, I think there's only like five or six books, but I, I, it sticks out to me too. Uh, I read the first book in three separate long running Napoleonic War uh, series. I read the first Hornblower book, which is called either Beat to Quarters or The Happy Return, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're in. Mine says Beat to Quarters. I think that's the U.S. title. I read the first uh, Aubrey Maturin novel, Master and Commander. uh, And I read the first Sharp novel by Bernard Cornwell, which is called Sharp's Eagle. Um, My little dog wished I hadn't read so much Napoleonic War stuff. Yeah, he Um, is pretty offended. uh, So I I read those three. And then I also read, um, it's not exactly the same, but it's close. I read two books by Raphael Sabatini, which was The Seahawk and Captain Blood. Those are not Napoleonic War era, but they are historical boat fiction <laughs> no uh, <laughs> well weird, weirdly i actually this is years ago before i even kept lists of books i read captain blood and um the first aubrey Maturin book as well like i read those the same year you know master and commander series and captain blood and there, but there was kind of a fun overlap of like obviously describing sea battles <laughs> and I'm like, I was like, like, like I was directly comparing how they did it differently, you know? And I, I can see why every dad that I know at least who reads goes down that rabbit hole at some point. Cause it really is like, it like, it, it like it satisfies and dad being a gender neutral term at this point, you know, like, you know, like dad fiction, um, <laughs> because it does satisfy <laughs> this weird, like it's like this double satisfaction of really technical, you know, maybe triple satisfaction, really technical, really historical. And also just kind of like an action film, you know, but like you were like, Oh, the rigging. Oh, how are they going to, how are they going to turn the ship that quickly? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they're telling you how they do it, which is silly. No, but that's exactly right. And I, I really enjoyed all of it. Um, I so the three Napoleonic War things are obviously similar in a lot of ways. They they weren't they're not written contemporaneously, but they have a similar kind of project where here's a character that I'm eventually going to write 15 novels about. Right. You know? And I I think I am going to keep up at least with the Aubrey Maturin same and Hornblower at least for a bit. I think the Aubrey Maturin is probably better as a whole, but the first Hornblower book is a lot of uh, a lot of fun as a psychological portrait of Hornblower, who is just kind of a mess, actually, which is kind of fun. (laughs) He's deeply concerned. Like, he can't set a foot out of line because he thinks he'll lose the respect of his whole crew. And he's, like, not wrong exactly, but he also maybe needs to calm down. Yeah. And I think that uh, it's fun in itself, and it's also fun to remember if you're like me and you have a whole whole rant you can go into about how nobody understands who Captain James Kirk actually is. Um (laughs) It's important to remember that Captain Kirk was partly inspired by Hornblower, right? 
And oh, if you yeah. remember that and you read the book, it makes a lot more sense. Because, you know, the image we have of Kirk is this womanizing goofball. is not, like, wrong exactly, but it's it's actually just wrong. It's actually not correct. No, I, I agree with that. Anyway, so I, I enjoyed Hornblower partly for Star Trek reasons is what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> but uh, I... Uh, uh, I think I probably will read more of the Aubrey Matcher and stuff. I think there's a lot of uh, interesting dynamics in that, and those are very cool characters. I also just love Raphael Sabatini. I do, um, too. I've read those two in Scaramouche, and my favorite thing he does with all three books is he will pretend that the book is actually like a historical text, right? Like it's like a yeah. pop history text about a real person, which they never are. And so he will do that by... Like, sometimes when he wants to have a big funny coincidence in his book because he's getting to the end of the book and he needs to wrap things up, he'll just say, man, it's weird how truth is weirder than fiction, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know if you can do that. You, but, you, do but you know, that? <laughs> I say, you know, what's so annoying is like it kind of works, right? Because it's like it's and, and, instead of convincing you of the, you know, suspension of disbelief, it's sort of charming you instead. Right. So like because the writer is always asking the reader to just go along with it. But if you're charming enough, you can do crap like that, right? Where you're like, oh, wink, wink, my fellow friend. And you're like, oh, I'm smart. I know you're joking. This is great. I'm definitely going to go along with it. But I do, I mean, I, I always have to say it. You're, you're actually the one who got me to read Scaramouche in high school. Um, and I, Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite, like, fun adventure texts. It's just a great time. I haven't read it in years, but it's a great time. I do think, I mean, I, I, I remember when I read, um, you know, Master and Commander a long time ago, and... Um, and I have the next few books actually kind of waiting to, you know, be delved into. And I remember my first impression really was like, oh, this is a series that I, I will read over the course of my lifetime. It's sort of like it's such an yeah. enjoyable thing to read. And I remember someone at, before I read it, I picked it up basically because someone before I read it said, you know, Patrick O'Brien under the guise of writing something like Hornblower has written like the most interesting historical fiction ever. And I, I am not qualified to adjudicate that claim. <laughs> like I have no idea if that's true <laughs> or not. <laughs> Cause like also war and peace is technically historical fiction. So, you know, but at the same time, I, I, you know, I, I, I would be interested in reading the, the other series you've talked about actually, like especially the Hornblower series, but I, I, you know, it's, it's sort of that, classic genre problem right that for all that master and commander is like you know fun sailing dad fiction it's what my memory of it is that it's incredible and that he is doing something at a very at a very high level and that actually supposedly he just gets better and better after post captain i think which is the next book unfortunately but yeah so i i want to get back to those myself someday yeah, so I, I I was joking I think at the last podcast but I was halfway considering it. I, I'm thinking about trying to set a, a higher book count for next year like I was considering it and I thought you know if I just read all of the Master and Commander books that's like most of it right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, done I, it, it, I honestly it, or something but yeah it'll always be a shame that Peter Weir didn't get to make more of those movies too right because that movie Master and Commander is great it's a great movie and it's a bummer that like it doesn't actually matter but like it would have been nice to see a few more of those I think that was a, there was a tweet going around some years ago. I can't remember who it was, and it just said, "In a better world than this one, we get a Master and Commander movie every year around Christmas." And oh, I think, yeah, gosh. that would be a better world than this one. That'd be so <laughs> great. Yeah, I would. I would even. So, yeah, I mean, it has to be Peter Ware. He he killed that. But yeah, that was. Oh well, maybe maybe you know Earth Two or whatever is enjoying that. <laughs> uh, so one reason I read that stuff was just because I have always kind of liked 
like I liked the movie Master and Commander when it first came out, and I've I like that kind of stuff. But also because I was trying to get uh, so there's this s- series of like sword and sorcery stories I've been sort of occasionally trying to write for like, three or four years now, and I, they're not very good so far. Maybe they'll be good someday. But I'm trying to draw from some of that well, yeah. right? Of like swashbuckling pirate nonsense or like historical stuff, <laughs> and uh, I realized I should actually read some of those books if I was going to do that rather than just drawing from like the you know, osmosis culture thing I'm dealing with. Uh, and it has been good. One problem with this is that I did, did things like type good pirate fiction into Google just to see what the heck came up uh, and found like a list that included some things I had heard of and some other things that I had read. And I'm not going to say the name because it doesn't matter because I don't want to rag on this particular author, right? But it, it came up with these two books in you know, like a one volume, two book thing. It was supposed to be like a really good like fantasy pirate adventure. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a plan. And I got it and it was YA. Uh, and here's the thing that's fine okay I'm not trying to like crap on the genre of YA but uh, you know I I enjoy some of it too right but I am a 30 year old 31 year old man I was 30 at the time like I don't want to just accidentally read YA you know (laughs) 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 and I got the book and I don't know how I had never looked at the cover but I looked at it and said oh this is for 15 year olds and that's fine but I am not 15 yeah and Okay, and so I read it, and I was like, this is about a pirate and a ninja that fall in love, and God, I am going to finish it because I own it, but I didn't... This website lied to me about what was good pirate fiction, because everything else was like stuff I'd heard of and was at least for grown-ups. And I just want to point out, maybe, guys, if you're writing lists of books, be a little clearer about the reading audience of the book that you're writing, because sometimes 31-year-old people will pick up books written for 15-year-olds and hate themselves. As a result, but I want to uh, point out fine for what it is. I want to point out though like <laughs> that the the Bill Coberly Integrity Reading Campaign remains unblemished because I believe you you finished those two books. Yes, <laughs> I did. No, I do. I did. Yeah. <laughs> so that I just I don't I, like having books on my shelf that I haven't read. I, mean, I, I still have a lot of them at this point, but I'm trying. God, I've yeah. you know I, the, the other the other reading related habit I should have brought up during the pandemic is my goal this year was like to not buy that many books because I've purchased so many in the last few years aspirationally you know like I'm, I'm fine with always having books on my shelf that I haven't read in the sense that like my bookshelves are aspirational as well as like you know uh, <laughs> as well as like tokens of victory hanging bloodied from my you know uh, <laughs> mantelpiece <laughs> but um but I uh I I I definitely like we were definitely financially restrained this year because of this year. And yet I still purchased so many books. In fact, <laughs> I think I've, I already told you this, but NYRB did me kind of dirty. I feel like because the week before Thanksgiving, they had this like box set deal, right? Hey, buy one of our box sets, you know, one of these like six texts that go together. And one of the sets was world war two, which included um, Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate, um, which I already own by some miraculous secondhand bookshop. I already own Stalingrad, the first in that you know little series he writes. And um, so I was like, okay, well, that book's really expensive anyway. The other books in that series, I've actually had my eye on almost all of them, so I'm going to buy this for so cheap. I'm going to confess it to my wife. It'll be fine. And then five effing days later... NYRB was like, hey, if you buy at least four books, we'll give you 40% off. Which that <laughs> that feels like a pointed attack on my financial stability. <laughs> 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 and so now I have like 11 
new NYRB books, most of which are like over, or at least not much was half of which are over 400 pages, then I, I, like that alone would be a good way to start my new year. And they're just going to sit there probably a few of them for years. But yeah, I, I definitely have gotten a little unbalanced with how many books I have versus how many of them I've read. And I, I'm hoping 2021 will bring more temperate uh, <laughs> purchasing habits from me. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Fun time. I get that. I knocked a few <laughs> books off my older list. I have on my list of books I want to read, because I have a list for that, too. Uh, it includes, of course, books I've purchased recently, but I have books that I've had since at least 2018 in bold, like, so they yell mm. at me, like I have to read these at some point. Uh, it includes both books that I personally owned, as well as books I inherited from my dad, so I don't feel so bad about, like, a lot of them are those, so I right. don't feel too bad about not having read them yet, but yeah. at the same time, like, I need to... Although that does mean I'm going to have to read a lot of weird conservative politics. If I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to go back to the roots, Bill. You know, get back to your yeah. roots. <laughs> I did read one Thomas Sowell book this year, which means I only have seven more to go, I think, looking at my <laughs> Oh, man. I don't. I, Eight. I, I, I will never have. Yeah. I'll never have your integrity when it comes to that kind of stuff. You are you are capable of systematic approaches, which I, I, I have gotten better at, but. I, I don't think I'll ever probably read every book that I own is the sad, sad truth. Oh, I won't either. I mean, I I, I think I have a hundred books that I haven't read, literally that I haven't read. I, yeah. I'm never going to get there, but I'm trying to at least chip away at it, right? No, I, I yeah, I feel you, man. I feel you. Well, that's okay. So what, um, what else stands out to you about what I've read or you've read or anything else that we've <laughs> both subjected ourselves yeah, so to this year? <laughs> I have a few questions. I, I, I wrote a list of books. Uh, so Joel, we, again, we exchanged spreadsheets earlier and I wrote a list of books that I said, I want to ask you about these, but the question is just going to be, tell me about this book. <laughs> yeah. So I do want to ask you though, you already mentioned it, but you reread the Nicomachean Ethics. I have been feeling like I should reread the Nicomachean Ethics and return to some of the other sort of philosophical primary texts that I thought of as really crucial to my philosophical journey or whatever. Right. The problem is that they're hard. Uh, <laughs> so tell me, what was it like to read the Nicomachean Ethics when you aren't in a philosophy class? You know, so I mean, so the, the first the first part, of course, is that you sort of can't believe how dumb you made yourself as a teenager by overthinking the text. Do you know what I mean? Like, so like approaching it outside of a classroom, at least for me, I, I, I think I have a lot of like... Someone had a great phrase where it was like high art anxiety or that 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 kind of the high art aura that becomes uh, an obstacle that like obfuscates or dumb word obfuscates yeah obfuscates I know uh, thanks <laughs> um, but you know like that that the aura sort of becomes a blockade around the work itself you know and I was really bad at that like I feel like in school I definitely overthought everything I did to the point that I made it and myself unintelligible. And so it was kind of a relief on one hand to just be like, Hey, this guy's like just talking about life. <laughs> I mean, like he's talking about, <laughs> he's talking about what does it mean to be good? And like, what things can we, you know, inculcate in ourselves to, to try and do that. Uh, on the other hand, I, I did start reading it right after I quit my job, which coincided with the pandemic. And so this was like the heart of my lack of focus. And I, I remember being kind of frustrated because I wanted it to be a, a meaningful experience. And it was, but I was having such a hard time. I feel like really taking things and internalizing them that I actually, I took notes on the text, but I, I, I did get to a place 
where I was just, I basically just free wrote about like, why am I reading this? What am I taking from this? And I think I'm going to read this little note that I made because it's a little too bumper stickery. But truthfully, like, I think this is sort of the beauty of philosophy is that when it's stripped of some of its academic context, which I'm not against the academic context, like this stuff is old, it's confusing. These people lived in a completely alien culture. Like you need the academic approach, I think, to understand what they're trying to say as opposed to imputing all of what you think. You know, like I get that. At the same time, the beauty of philosophy is I think it can be stripped to kind of this almost bumper sticker idea of like, so I, I wrote down, you know, the conclusions are too many. Be good by habit, no good by reason, whose queen is induction. Seek propriety, in his terms, of human states and feelings, rather than an abnegation of feelings, an acceptance of the inhuman. Prize study, which gives understanding, which is divine. And I, it was just, I, mean, I don't know, I, that's kind of what it ended up meaning to me. In more concrete terms, I think he reconvinced me of the importance of induction, um, which sounds silly, but I did take that away from it. And two, I mean, like half the damn book is about friendship, you know? Yeah. The, even the famous line, we must be friends, comes from this book. And I think in this year of all years and the last four years and in my own life where I feel isolated because of the pandemic and my kids and whatever else, I, it really struck home you know, the notion of needing a friend and the high value that the Greeks put on friends that we, I think, try to, but often fail to emulate. Uh, the last thought, because I'm, I'm talking to be too long, is I will say, like, one of the beauties of reading Aristotle, though, is that, you know what, <laughs> he really has been digested and represented in a lot of cultural artifacts, both explicitly and implicitly. And so in some ways, like, it's not ever as meaningful as you want it to be because you've already met the ideas in a digested form, you know? So even like, this isn't my mom's saying, but my mom, my mom, my mom always said, you know, you've got friends for a reason, for a season or for life. Apparently that's Aristotle. <laughs> yeah. Um, like almost like not verbatim, but it's, that's like a pretty perfect summation of him talking about, you know, the kinds of friends you have. So in that sense, it was awesome because you realize how much of Aristotle has filtered through to you, whether you've meant it to or not. And on the other hand, it, it was sort of a, a jolt in the arm of like this kind of pure aspirational hope of being good and doing good and prizing things that are good, sort of no matter what the external pressures are, you know, whether it's to to deride certain types of learning or to dismiss certain, you know, efforts at being temperate, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, it was, it was, I guess I'm saying it was pretty profound, apparently. <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really think of it like that, but I, I'm looking back on it. Yeah, I, I think it was a good way to start out the pandemic, but definitely the lack of, you know, classroom anxiety was was great and i highly recommend going back for that reason well that makes i mean i have a copy i think it's the same translation i'm sure it's the gray one yeah that everyone yeah, yeah. it's great yeah. <laughs> so i've been thinking about it and i i've been particularly thinking about it because uh i mean i i think you and i both have described ourselves as virtue ethicists uh before uh i guess i don't want to put any words in your mouth no yeah least, uh, totally yeah so i've been thinking i need to reread it and also because one of my most prized possessions is a whiskey glass that my friend Sabrina gave me after I had helped officiate her wedding, 
which has the words complete friendship is the friendship of good people similar in virtue which is a quote from yes from that, uh inscribed on it uh, you've met Sabrina. She's actually an Oxford Don now. Uh, is she really? I mean, I met her in Oxford, but yeah. that's good. Yeah. Go Sabrina. Uh, dang. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew I, I knew she was teaching there, but she said those words and I was like, I guess that's, yeah, that's true. So anyway, she's <laughs> doing great. Wild. Shout out to our friend Sabrina, who does not, to my knowledge, listen <laughs> who's, to this podcast. Who's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I, remember, I remember her being awesome. <laughs> she is great. Yeah. <laughs> Another book I wanted to ask you about that you had read, uh, which is in my sort of wheelhouse of things I think are interesting is The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval, which was big when it came out, what, three years ago, four years ago? Um, yeah. For being, because uh, it's, a, it's a, it, Victor Laval is, is African-American. He's written quite a bit of other stuff, which I haven't read any of. Uh, he's actually on my list of authors to try to do a completionist run on, but I haven't done it yet. Uh, but he wrote it as a reclamation, I guess is the word I would use, of H.P. Lovecraft's, uh, probably his worst story, or at least on the short list, The Horror at Red Hook, which is, not a good story as a horror story, and it's really just, like, good gravy people who aren't white or scary. Like, it doesn't even really <laughs> add up to anything beyond that. It's a bad story. Yeah. And uh, so Victor Laval uh, writes this vamp on it. It's not a strict retelling. Like, it, it definitely changes some things, but it, it's got the same sort of arc, and it you can see where it touches the original story. Uh, and I read it maybe a year after it came out and thought it was interesting and have wanted to spend more time thinking about it. Uh, but what did... Uh, what did you think about it? I guess I'm just curious because I really like, you know, I'm a big Lovecraft guy, even as I acknowledge that he was a you know, really bad racist and, and I don't make excuses for any of that. Right. Uh, and so seeing this black author write the book, which the dedication is to HPL despite everything, um, which I think is just fascinating. And I want to talk to Victor Laval a lot about that. Don't know how to do that without <laughs> sounding weird, though. So I'm not going to do that. You should tweet. Anyway, what do you think about the book? Tweet, yeah. yeah, I should just tweet at him. Victor, you don't know me. Tell me everything about your complex feelings of race. And H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> Tell me this. I am some white dude you've never heard of. Please go into details about your experience. That's what I should do. That, that'll work. No, I, I really... It'll work. He'll love it. For honestly, I think a lot of H.P. Lovecraft stuff... I don't have a lot of examples because I've only read a little bit, but it risks um, being derivative, right? Like, it, it, like you're trying to recapture the horror of the old gods or the Arctic or whatever, right? And there's ways in which sometimes I feel like he's already done this. Why are you redoing this under the guise of it being an homage? And I actually didn't feel that with The Ballad of Black Tom. And maybe it's because he is telling a, a different point of view, right? He's kind of telling a different story of power and oppression that uh, Lovecraft couldn't tell, much less didn't tell. But the book is, I think, obsessed with the idea of how society can drive those it oppresses to to doing the very things it condemns those people for quote unquote being right so like it's almost like the you you know you abuse someone long enough and then you're mad that they're so unstable or something you know like he he yeah. i think he is <laughs> He is obsessed with that idea, which I found particularly interesting. And this is almost dangerous territory because I actually felt like a lot of the last few years, you know, we've been talking about like um, either those who have been disenfranchised or even those who would pretend or would feel aggrieved as if they've been disenfranchised. And I think you've seen a lot of people like poo-poo the idea of, of, you know, oh, certain annoying white men have been excluded from, you know, society's, like, cultural decision-making, which, of course, isn't true, but that, that's what the white men are telling you. 
And so we've kind of poo-pooed the idea of them becoming radicals as a reaction of that. Like, oh, you can't say things, so you've become a white supremacist. And I, I agree with some of that dismissal, but I think weirdly, this book gives a lot of meat to the idea that those identity reactions, those, you know, hardcore radicalizations, it's often about power, right? So you want to have cultural power. And so if the only way you can have cultural power is to go to these crazy extremes, I I think that is sometimes what an oppressive society does. And it's how it distorts its own citizenry is that it, you know, it kind of only allows those in these certain radical extremes to converse with power. Um, which that's way off topic from what I wanted to talk about, <laughs> which is just that, like, I liked how he disappeared and reappeared and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and I actually, I, I, I think I, I know it's been a few years since you read it, I think, but, um, it feels like the, um, you know, cause Black Tom is successful, right? He, he basically is, you know, is successful in, in sort of petitioning and bringing the the old the old god back it hasn't happened yet but he kind of says it's going to happen in this like slow endlessly destructive way i can't remember the exact phrasing but for me it was like i think he's talking about climate change (laughs) and some yeah no he explicitly it's been a few years since i've read it but yeah he explicitly connects that cthulhu when cthulhu comes back part of what that is is warming up the uh, warming up warming up the the that's what it was yeah Yeah, that's what it was but yeah, I liked it. So it was kind of a long aside that I didn't mean to go on, but I I did really enjoy it, and I, I was and it's on my list actually, of course, because I mean I had heard of it, but you, you kind of put it on my list. I kind of wanted I I want to kind of turn it back on to you though, because you have a few books that I, you know, I wanted to ask you about. Um, one of yep. them was so it's not at all related to anything you you said you wanted to talk about, but you reread um Neil Gaiman's Coraline. Did you? What did you think of that? Or maybe you read it the first time. Sorry, Coraline. No, I reread it. Uh, I'd read Coraline four or five years ago, and then that was one of the books. Uh, there was a while when I was doing a like a reading short stories and stuff out loud to people yeah. on the internet thing, which I don't know. I, the pandemic was a weird time. I can't tell if that was a fun sort of faintly sweet thing to do or just a deeply weird thing to do, and I don't know. But uh, I did it for a while, and I actually read all of Coraline uh, out loud as part of that. I really like Coraline. I'm not like. Uh, obsessed like some folks it's a it's a very important book for them and it's not that for me right yeah Um, although i think if i had read it when i was a kid it might have been um so so one of the people who i don't know very well was was watching and said something like man i can't imagine reading this as a kid and i said i get that it is a very unnerving (laughs) and strange book i think if i had read it as a kid i would have been madly in love and i would have might have changed my whole aesthetic accordingly um uh, i don't know i like Coraline. i uh, i don't know if i have anything terribly clever to say about it it is more unsettling, I think, than a lot of children's fiction, even unsettling children's fiction is. Right. I don't think that's a problem exactly, um, but it is a it is an unsettling book. Uh, I like the movie. I, I've seen the movie a few years ago. I haven't watched it since I reread the book this time. Uh, I think you've told me before that you're team weird boy sidekick, but I am very much not team weird boy sidekick. <laughs> I, the movie adds. I am. Yeah. Uh, the, the movie adds a, a weird boy sidekick who is just not in the book at all. Uh, so she has like a friend for some of her adventures. And I, I don't think that works very well. I don't think it works as well. Although I acknowledge that, you know, she can't be talking to herself in the movie as much as she does in the book. Right. Like that starts to be uh, work less well. So I, I guess I get it. But I don't know. I mean, the, the weird <laughs> alien world that's or you know, sort of a garbage reflection of ours and is slowly collapsing in sort of deeply unsettling ways. I like it a lot. 
It would have given children nightmares. I don't think that's a problem. I think children should occasionally have nightmares, but I also don't Amen. have any children, so I don't have to help them <laughs> no, go they, back to they sleep. No, they definitely should. So, yeah. <laughs> so the other, other thing, so I, 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 think, I think I caught my eye just because we were talking about like kind of genre and weird fiction, and, and there's definitely, it's not weird fiction in the way that I'm referring to like Lovecraft stuff, but it, it has weird elements. But um, but the other thing that we should talk about if we're, if we're mentioning weird fiction, I think... Um, even though it's it's like as far from it in some ways as possible, is it looks like you read the three body problem. I did, and I'm most of the way through the second book. I haven't quite finished it yet. I think I will before the end of the year, but today okay. is what the twenty seventh, twenty eighth, and I haven't finished it yet. So yeah, I did read the the three body problem. Well, um, I, and I and, and you I, read it this year too, right? Yeah, I read it. So I read I read the first two books. Um, I I liked both of them, but I I, I honestly like this is one of the ones I wanted to ask you most because it's been. It's been one of the most hyped kind of science fiction trilogies in a long time, right? Like the, the little box set that yeah. I have, I think it has a it has a blurb from Obama. <laughs> yeah, like, no, uh, mine too. <laughs> I yeah, he's always he's associated my brain with like he blurbed about it a lot. I mean, I don't know how much he really did, but he said like he wrote like a few paragraphs about it somewhere at some point, and they're very happy with that. They're yeah, very, they they really love that. The yeah, liked it. Uh, which you know fair enough yeah <laughs> yeah well because okay and so you you're most way through the second book which i was going to ask you more about um but i i don't want to accidentally spoil something on you know without meaning to but i i i, I thought it was you're gonna ask me about the time that one of the characters goes and hangs out with bin laden for a while is that what you're gonna ask me about because yeah i wondered what <laughs> president obama felt when he read that <laughs> You know, I you know <laughs> that wasn't the part. Oh, that that is that is the scene I believe where um they explicitly reference Asimov's Foundation series, right? Doesn't Osama bin Laden yep. give yep. this general character, um, well, yeah, the like Foundation <laughs> or whatever, all the way around. But yeah, no, he oh, yeah. hands him okay. uh, a copy of the newest Arabic translation of one of the later Foundation books. Hands it to bin. He never. They don't ever say he's bin Laden. Yeah, but, but he's clearly, he clearly bin Laden. Is. Yeah. Um. And I don't know, like my translator's note says that Al-Qaeda is apparently translated in Chinese rather than like transliterated, like they actually translate the word. And apparently it means foundation or something along the right. I don't even know this. I feel like, you know, this is one of those things where like, hey, we, you can hear a word every day for 20 years and not actually know what it means. Um, I don't know what Al-Qaeda means. But, <laughs> I don't uh, either. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I thought that was a deeply, a deeply odd uh, scene, and I wanted to look a lot more into whether that was just something Chishin Liu made up, or if there is actually some connection between Asimov and Bin Laden. That would be no, fascinating. I, yeah, and I, I was more curious in the uh, sort of the main character of the second novel, his uh, um, 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 imagination. I don't know. I can't remember the sequence of events. Yeah. <laughs> so we're like he dreams up a a girlfriend. You got there, right? Yep. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm close to the end. So I, uh, they've just, they're pretty recently in the future, right? Okay. Like, okay. Uh, okay. We're, okay. We're pretty recently in the part where they time skip to the future. So I, I'm sure there's more coming with that. I but, think this, yeah. it must be. So I think what tripped me up, this is a total, we're now off in like the weeds. I, it must be talked about because I have to tell someone that I, I, I don't know how someone can write a book that is mostly this good. And, and he, I think he wants to be Asimov, you know, and I, and I think that's probably accurate because like a, a lot of his characterization and prose, it doesn't really leap off the page for me. And he's on record weirdly, which we talked about. I've never heard this before. He's on record as saying the English translations of his books are better prose than the Chinese originals, which 
that's very unusual to have someone say that the translation does better prose than the original. And I didn't think the prose was that great, to be honest. Um, and cause I don't think he, I don't, partly I don't think he cares about it, but <laughs> he has this extended, extended riff on, you know, this main character being basically like he has the personality or the mind of a literary genius. <laughs> <laughs> and what that means is that he hallucinates, essentially, it's not that, but like he hallucinates having a made up girlfriend who's a total fantasy. And like, I'm not saying that like writers don't have rich fantasy lives and that sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> and that like, I mean, Tolstoy, yeah, some writers would talk about characters as if they're real. Like, I have a book that I'm working on right now, and there's a character that I, I think about, like, about, like, oh, what what would she do, or what would she not do, or whatever. But this, I, it's so wrong. It's so, like, inaccurate to, like, the literary experience. It's like someone, it's like, it's like an engineer friend describing, <laughs> I don't know, it's, did you not, was it, was it not, I'm sorry, it broke my brain. I thought it was crazy. <laughs> And I didn't get why he went so far with it. <laughs> so this is one of those things where I got to be kind of careful. I It's weird. Uh, I think it's partly a cultural thing is the real truth, because stuff like that happens in Chinese science fiction all the time. Uh, I don't know if I can point. I can't think of another example off the top of my head, but I've read. A, I, I shouldn't pretend that I'm an expert on the subject. I am not. Right. But, uh, I subscribed to Clark's World for a long time. I actually got so behind I had to stop. And they do um, a fair amount of stuff. That they translate from uh, mostly either Chinese or Korean, um, and so I've read not an infinite amount, but a chunk of, of short stories from from both Chinese and Korean markets, and uh, it's the sort of like thing that comes off to me as just deeply weird and and sort of childish, yeah, um, right. But I think it's it's just a sort of thing that is more acceptable in in that tradition i guess right well what and I... to, to bounce off that a little bit like obviously japan is not the same place as china i'm not saying it is but uh, in terms of having more cultural commonalities perhaps than like england and china right right uh like anime will do stuff like that right you'll have very very thoughtful interesting stuff going on in anime and also a character will do something like hallucinate a girlfriend like it's the sort of thing that happens all the time <laughs> it's true I, uh, well... <laughs> in anime and and so i think I think it, it is weird, and I'm willing to say I didn't like it very much. Like, I'm not going to sit here and just adopt a purely cultural relativist position, but I think right. that sort of thing, characters having a sort of uh, a mental, uh, a very literalized sort of mental metaphor, basically, right? Right. Uh, I think happens a lot more in, in some cultures than it does in American sci-fi, at least. And Because I've noticed that kind of thing. Characters will have, like, a they'll have these very hard-on-their-sleeve conversations that, you know... I can't imagine two people having in the real world at all. And that feels kind of similar, right? That people will just say, here's my worldview, basically, right? Yeah, that's true. In a way true. that feels very sort of odd to me, but it, again, it's very common there. And I don't know to what extent real human beings in those cultures do that or not. I haven't the faintest idea, but uh, well, it definitely, yeah, so it's, that's so a long it, way of saying, I don't know, maybe it's just Chinese, which is not intended to sound stereotypical. I'm no, 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 honest. no. <laughs> well, and I think, I, I do think part of, it did feel like it was responding to certain like, cultural ideas that I maybe am not embedded in, you know, like, cause I, I mean, I definitely have stuff in my fiction that's weird. Like, um, I mean, I, I, or actually a better example is like Muriel Spark in her first novel. There's a lot of weird things, but one of the oddest is that she's a character who, when no one else is present, when this character goes to be, be in, like, goes away by herself, she vanishes. 
And the text is very clear that, like, this isn't, like, a metaphor. She literally disappears. And I, I think, of course, you know, Marilla Sparks Catholic. She's trying to get at the idea of, you know, evil doesn't have its own positive existence, right? It's sort of the Jesuit idea of, you know, cold is the absence of warmth sort of thing, right? Um, and so I think that's what she's literalizing. <laughs> um, I, I, I will say I, I think it makes more sense in the book period partly because one of the things that um, the dark forest explores is how important you know like what is the connection between basically wishful thinking and then um that wishful thinking having sort of like concrete outcomes and i i guess again i'm sure it probably is a cultural gap but some of it seems like Maybe the author is, yeah, I don't know, like, yeah, he's too committed to a concrete representation of his metaphors. But yeah, I, I'm willing to, you know, concede. I, I was just, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, do you think that Tolstoy, like, saw Anna Karenina and wasn't, you know, like, <laughs> like, I don't, like, he didn't, you know what I mean? Like, I he definitely <laughs> didn't. Um, and if and if you're seeing your character is like, that's, you, you should talk to someone. I mean, I, that's just my opinion. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's, that's way off topic. I, I really enjoyed both books. Um, I'll read the third one at some point. I think they're, they're such crazy big ideas and they actually really care about science a lot in a way that I sometimes don't care about, but which I thought he, he, he made interesting, even though it's, you know, it's, it's not just purely hard science fiction, but it, he definitely prefers that mode, I think. And I, I thought he did cool stuff, even though sometimes that stuff annoys me. I, I think you mentioned this in a, a Discord we're in, but he just has a million ideas he wants to deal with. Like the same yeah. book, the same two books explore like at least 10 major sci-fi concepts that could oh, totally support their own novels, if not series. Right? He like, totally does. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's just wild. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know a lot of other books that do. I mean, I guess Cape Stanley Robinson's books do, which is one of the things I read this year. I read the Mars trilogy and that's got at least three major things that would be enough to support a novel and is in fact just one of three things that happens. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a big series. I'm enjoying it. It is, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I feel a bit unmoored when I read it just because of it's got, it's just got a different approach to storytelling that I'm still not used to, even though I've read some of that kind of thing. Right. Uh, and so I have a kind of a hard time evaluating some of it. I'm just like, I don't know. I feel weird. I don't know if that's good or bad, uh, <laughs> but he does enough stuff that is absolutely wonderful that I don't have any doubts that well, you know, these are good books. Like, and that's I, not what I'm saying. <laughs> and I, I, I think he is definitely the heir to Asimov's foundation vision, right? Because at least yeah. when I was younger, when I read foundation, including the, like the whole, the whole arc of the foundation series. Um, and I actually not sure I ever finished the very last book, but like foundation and earth and sort of that section of the series, which he wrote later, not the pre, not the prequels, but like it, it gets pretty wild, right? Like there's sort like the actual kind of Gaia philosophy of a living planet. Like some of this stuff becomes things he actually is concerned with, but, but more so the the mind blowing scope, even though of course a novel can't, you know, document 30,000 years the foundation series really is committed to this gigantic overview concept of what it means to be a, a you know a sentient species in you know the universe and how civilizations rise fall yeah 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 and, and obviously this book is doing the same thing right like it's i think it's 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 scenes in the future where you know 
Um, certain things have happened, the change, the culture, all of that felt, if, you know, if not realistic, certainly fascinating as a commentary on both the present and also, of course, the presence, you know, possible consequences. But it is it is a little mind blowing because sometimes to just have like, oh yeah, they you know they unfolded this thing into ten dimensions and then the the sky was full of eyes from the sentient beings that live at a microscopic level that we can't usually see. But whoops, now we can. And I guess we destroyed who knows how many galaxy equivalent <laughs> civilizations. Yep. <laughs> it's like oh 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 okay. Yep. Anyway, that was a thing that happened. Now their Next weapons chapter. were sending to Earth. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah, th- yeah. That's so. That it's definitely yeah. It definitely deserves deserves its hype, but it it was a, a much weirder read than I was expecting. <laughs> um, so I'm going to switch back to asking you questions. Okay. Um, so you have read a lot of Kate Atkinson over the last few years, and I'm not sure we've ever talked about Kate Atkinson. Who is Kate Atkinson? <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, Kate Atkinson is a Scottish writer who is mostly famous for her Jackson Brody like detective series, um, but she she's something much weirder than a you know crime novelist. Not even in the sense of like P.D. James wrote you know sort of high mystery novels, right? Like if you have you know literary, um, you know well-done literary mystery novels. It's not even just that. Like, that is what Kate Atkinson does. But it really is as if, like, Hilary Mantel wrote crime fiction, you know? Everything is sort of about these internal... Char- you know, these internal tensions of characters and so forth so on. Anyway, so she's a, she's a great writer. I, I, I love her stuff. Um, she's both kind of the classic, like... She's doing genre, and she's doing these novels that kind of, I think pull you through with plot, but it's all about the characters. I think my highest recommendation is that, which maybe this means nothing to anyone as a problem is like, but it really is like Hillary Mantel decided to do crime fiction every now and then. Um, she's funny. She's smart. She's sort of like perfect, like relaxing read that still, you know, kind of rewards attention. If that makes sense. It does. But I will say I, the book that sticks with me most, I, I liked the the stuff I read this year from her. But the book that sticks with me most, um, it was one of her most recent ones. It's a standalone novel about an MI5 agent during World War II. It's called Transcription, and it's great. It was really good. It was clearly, and she even says it, it was inspired by a Penelope Fitzgerald novel, basically. And it's one of the books that I think about all the time as far as, you know, the last the last few pages is hitting you over the head with these brilliant sort of conclusions. But yeah, she's, I would say she's one of my, yeah, one of my favorite kind of go-to writers that I don't have to have a, you know, there's like no agenda. I just really enjoy her. Um, that makes sense. It, it is funny. There's, I don't know if I should tell this story. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, then clearly. <laughs> well, there's just one of my, I mean, no one listens to this podcast. Who's going to, I think ever report back or anything, but one of my professors um, at Syracuse, who's also, I think one of, you know, our kind of great casual literary critics, he wrote this, like, it was like a 3000 word essay about transcription in the New Yorker. And it's just like a, it's basically a rave. You know what I mean? Like the New Yorker doesn't yeah. often look at genre fiction, 
this professor didn't often read genre fiction from what I know, although I'm starting to revise that because he also looked at David Mitchell recently, but he didn't strike me as a genre guy, but it, it really is sort of a, you know, in this age of like, you know, auto fiction norms, here comes Kate Atkinson writing old school where her unit of aesthetic is the paragraph and not the sentence. And she is as good as ever. But he made some comments about, you know, like, basically, yeah, how how we how we get to have this sort of old fashioned fiction being alive and well with this cutting edge stuff. And apparently Kay Atkinson read that and took offense to it <laughs> and talked about it at some point. Oh, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was sort of crazy because it's like you expect maybe to hear some flack from fellow authors when you give them grief, right? Like um, <laughs> I, I have a short story that I'll never actually title this about a men – a men's book club that I, I titled Everybody Hates Jonathan Franzen, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't really want to do. I'm not sure I'm that punk rock enough to pull off. Um, it's, <laughs> but um, it's one thing to like write that, you know, but like he wrote a 3000 word rave in the New Yorker and it, it's still, you know, <laughs> still prickled her skin. <laughs> so, so, uh, I have some more stuff I kind of want to talk about, and I, I have at least one more question to be willing to ask you about. But I do think that we've been ignoring the elephant in the room, and we oh need to not gosh. forget to do it. Because I could I could see us being so sort of worried about spending a whole podcast on it that we don't do it at all, and You're I refuse right. to let that happen. You're right, Bill. Um, uh, one of the best books I read this year, and I'll let Joel speak for himself, but I would expect he would say something similar, uh, was Susanna Clark's Piranesi, um, which... Uh, is going to definitely be one of the books that I think about for a very long time going forward. Uh, so I am technically a Susanna Clark completionist now, although that's three books, so it doesn't mean that much. Um, <laughs> we read, of course, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell on the podcast, uh, first podcast this year, and, and both loved that book. Uh, and then she released Piranesi in September, and after that I, I went and tracked down, it's not that hard to find, but it's a little harder, her uh, book of short stories, which are 90% basically deleted scenes from Jonathan Strange. Uh, called The Ladies of Grace Adieu. Um, and they're all three great. Uh, the short stories are mostly deleted scenes, and so I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think about them as much, but they're still very good, right? Yeah. Um, and the title story in particular is really good. Uh, but Piranesi uh, is incredible, and it's incredible that it's a sophomore novel. I think we have talked about it faintly on the podcast before, but we just got to spend a little time with it, because it is it is a sophomore novel which does literally none of the things the first book did except quality, right? Yeah. Like, it is an entirely different novel, except that it's also superb. Because where Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is a thousand-page Jane Austen, also with sort of David Foster Wallace footnotes, uh, <laughs> take on English magicians in the Napoleonic Wars... So I guess that counts as another Actually, one of my Actually, I was just going to say, I hadn't thought about think, that, but I, I guess it does. That, yeah. <laughs> and I guess More in Peace was last year. Yeah, so there's more. Uh, anyway, uh, so that's what Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is, right? And Piranesi is maybe 210 pages, and it's all first person, and it's just a pretty tight little mystery that is also a really wonderful portrait of this guy's sort of unhinged life and his world that he lives in, and it's uh, it's perfect. I don't, I mean, it's incredible. No, it's hard I, to talk about without spoiling it, which is, I mean, obviously yeah. you wouldn't spoil it if I told you everything about it because it's so good. But the 
unwrapping of what's going on is fun because it's not just, ooh, what's in this mystery box? It's also, how is our guy going to respond to right. what he's just, right? Yeah. So this is this is the thing that J.J. Abrams doesn't get, uh, <laughs> is your mystery box is only interesting if you see how your characters react to the mystery box. See, that's what makes something art rather than just like a logic puzzle that nobody cares about. Wow, um, that's a pretty, that's a pretty... Uh... <laughs> Amazing, not even subtweet, just tweet about J.J. Abrams that I didn't see coming, which is, by the way, I, uh, totally I accurate. Like to, somebody else said this on totally Twitter, accurate. but it is impressive that J.J. Abrams managed to do terrible things to both Star Trek and, and Star, Star Wars. Wars. Like, that I is know. commitment to being horrible to nerds. I'm just impressed. Yeah. Anyway, I, I I'm not totally going to turn this into a Star Wars podcast. But, not this time, uh, but um, stay tuned. <laughs> Um, no, I refuse to ever have a big public opinion about Star Wars again. <laughs> I won't do it. I, I, the only, I mean, I, I guess I've said one, one, one hot take, which is Star Wars is best as a Saturday morning cartoon, and the last four episodes of the Clone Wars are the best thing they've done since, since Empire. And I think that's just yeah. true, though. It so I'm not really no, gonna fight about accurate. it too much. <laughs> yeah, that is just accurate. No, so I, I, I also loved this novel, and I think I loved it in that kind of way where it's actually hard to be not even just critical in a sense of like analytical, it's almost hard to be <laughs> like reflective about why I loved it. Cause it's sort of just like slipping in. This sounds so dumb. I don't know why I'm going to say this. It's almost like slipping into a warm <laughs> bath. You know, like it's like the experience sort of comes over you and the idea of trying to dissect it would almost defeat the point of having a bath. Right. That's not why you, but like, but it, I don't mean to like say it's, it's because it's like happy genre fiction that you just sort of feel good reading it definitely hit me at almost every level. I know you said that the last line of the book basically really affected you like emotionally. And yeah. I, I had a similar experience where I, I finished it and I sort of just sat there not feeling anything distinct, but certainly feeling expanded in myself, which is what you want from a book, you know? But I will say like, I, I think everyone who loves her books feels like they're sort of written for them. Right. Cause she, yeah, she takes things that you love. And I said this about Jonathan Strange, but it's also true about Paranasi is that she takes things that you love and instead of being derivative or reductive or somehow ruining them, she builds new and perhaps even more beautiful things from those scraps. And in this case, um, I mean, she very directly is actually playing with C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew. Um, you know, there's yeah. a magician figure who's named after the magician figure and magician's nephew. Uh, the world of Paranasi is, I think, an allusion to, if not actually just like a later version of a world that C.S. Lewis deals with in the magician's nephew. And so all of that, it feels like, okay, what are you going to like? What, what are you going to do that's new? But she's also the ultimate example of, you know what? It's almost like, yeah, if you sing really beautifully you too can sing a classic and make it sound new. You mean like the execution at some point, and it's the hardest thing to talk about in, in literature from like a writing perspective, but the execution is very obviously, but sometimes very mysteriously, everything. And I can kind of like, I could tell you what she does with first person. I could tell you how she really handles the, re, you know, the reveal of information is so well done. There's so little, and then a character enters and there's this like, you know, this like huge dump, but in this really perfect way that unsettles everything. And so she handles information well. She handles like, you know, yada, yada, yada. But honestly, it 
it's it's sort of that beautiful thing of literature where like it's just something whole she has something whole that she made from other parts and it's honestly it's just a joy to like to read uh at at every level which is maybe just as as gushing as i could be (laughs) i think about any yeah that's i i i I found it hard to talk about the book without just gushing, um, which is sort of how I felt about Jonathan Strange, too, but at least because there's more, there's just more words, right? It was easier to yeah. sort of pick out some specific things. But, I mean, I don't know. I It's been a long time. I mean, I, I read a lot of good books, right? It's not very often that I read literally the last line of a book and, like, tear up and have to sit down. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. But something about the way it was just a perfect capstone, you know, I don't know. Uh, also, I mean, it's the kind of book that really appeals to me because it's a book that, this isn't a spoiler, but like it's got a weird world that nobody really understands and a main character who is clearly not thinking correctly, but right. whose internal thought processes are both internally, are both fascinating into themselves and also give you this perfect ironic distance between like sort of cosmic irony, right? Between what, how he perceives things and the way any halfway competent reader will perceive them, right? You know, uh, characters will show up and do things and our hero will say, that must mean X. And you're like, that clearly doesn't mean X. It means Y. Right. <laughs> Oh my God! What happened to you that you can't see that? Like, <laughs> well, and and there's there's two things that sh- that are so great too. Like, so it's an unreliable narrator in some sense, right? So a little like the David Foster Wallace footnotes from Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, she does sort of love using these, you know, modern techniques or whatever you want to call it. But I I I find her the way she does it, it is a lot like cleaner than the modernists or the postmodernists are doing. Like, she's not, I think, quite as, un- like, the footnotes in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, they're not nearly as, from what I understand, unraveled and even maybe sometimes irrelevant as David Foster Wallace's project, right? Like, he's doing something that's supposed to be, like, so much more disruptive. And I think a lot of times she takes those same ideas and instead of making them just disruptive, she makes something quite coherent out of them. So this is, like, an unreliable narrator who who you understand the tension of his unreliability in an, in, a, in an explicit and compelling way that isn't just like, oh, is Holden Caulfield, is he lying to me or himself right now? I literally can't tell. <laughs> um, which at some point is boring in my mind. Like um, a project that just disrupts is not as interesting as a project that use some of those uses some of those same techniques to build a positive idea. And she definitely does. Like she's interested in this guy as an unreliable narrator because she's interested in sort of identity and how we are, you know, internally and externally pulled apart and put together again by trauma and other things. And I would say that this year of all years, it's pretty great to read a a novel that basically takes place in a single location. The labyrinth of which is maybe just someone's mind. (laughs) In like a certain metaphorical sense, it's not literally his mind, but you know, like like that's a good novel for this year of lockdowns. <laughs> it was also I I read it while we were reading a secular age, like we had almost finished a secular age, but had both have to push it back, uh, push the podcast back for like a week or two because we both hadn't finished it. Right, and it was like that Sunday. I was like, well, I'm not going to finish this book, but I'll pick up Perinazi, and it was like, oh, what a nice easier book to read. <laughs> I mean, not easy. Again, not the sense like turn your brain off. No, easy, but it's... like the book is we're mostly willing to work with you here. And... <laughs> yes. So that that oh may be part gosh. of it. It may have been a sort of well, a, 
uh, hostage situation, and so <laughs> sort I, of I, being freed and back to the arms of my family. I, I, but <laughs> I don't, yeah, secular age definitely has that uh, that Stockholm syndrome problem of long books, where like you come to love it, but did it force you to do that? You know, like I don't. Um, <laughs> which is, I mean, that's a very important book to me. I think going forward in life, but it was. I did no, feel it's a great book. But... I did feel captive to it in a way. Well, what's funny is so I, I was definitely going to read Paranasi no matter what, but you told me you did that. And so I, I think I finished secular age and then did the same thing. Like I read it like in basically a sitting. And then what was wild is someone online on Twitter, um, Susanna black, who's like an editor at plow, which is a great magazine and somewhere else. She tweeted out that it was something like eat your heart out. Charles Taylor, Susanna Clark does with a slim novel, you know, what a secular age does with a giant philosophy book. I that's, I messed that up, but, but it was some like weirdly specific, Charles Taylor Paranasi mashup tweet and I just thought like I <laughs> did someone hack my brain <laughs> you know what I mean like <laughs> how did this person get inside my head because I, I I'm not sure I, I know what she had in mind this um editor but I, I certainly think there are ways in which this book is definitely about you know disenchantment enchantment and the issues of you know, the modern self amidst the runes of disenchantment, right? Like that's clearly in this novel's, you know, scope of project. Um, which of course, again, she does with like, I I almost wanted the novel to be longer. It couldn't have been, it was perfect size, but it's such a slim, beautiful little thing that you, you almost want to know more. Um, yeah, no, I would agree. So I don't know if we have much more to say without just saying, isn't this book good? Isn't but, this book good? Uh, Pyrenees is really good. It's, it's uh, so good. I mean, if I had to pick one book for the year, I don't know for sure what it would be, but it would be close. It, it would certainly be a, a strong fight between that and her other book that I really liked, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, or then getting off into deeply other weird territory like A Secular Age, which I don't know how to compare the two books. Right. So that's why I don't pick a best book of the year, because that's a doomed <laughs> project. Well, I was going to ask you what books, like, yeah, kind of what your favorite reads, you kind of just told me what your favorite reads of the year were, and you, you've mentioned Blood in the Water, Susanna Clark, and I don't know if Charles Taylor would be one of them, but do you, is there anything else you want to kind of elevate to that, I loved this and we haven't, we haven't talked about it or talked about it enough status? Yeah, so I think there's one book in particular I want to point out, um, which is Stephen Graham Jones' book, Mongrels. Uh, which I actually mentioned briefly, I think, last year at this time, because I'd started it and had to put it down. Yeah. Because it's a horror novel that had an image that so actually... deeply distressing that I had to stop, which doesn't happen to yeah, me. Yeah, it actually horrified <laughs> <I> you. <laughs> uh, and one which was not just for the purpose of being gross, like it, it I mean, it, it, a little bit, right? But all, like it was, it made sense, right? Because Mongrels is, to one extent, it's a sort of a gritty, what if werewolves were real book, right? Yeah. But it's just not that at all, partly because Stephen Graham Jones is uh, actually a, like a, 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 an artist rather than just like a hack, right? Uh, <laughs> um, I haven't read too much of his stuff, but like he does stuff very on purpose. Like he's, yeah. he's definitely a literary horror writer. He's not uh, he's not just churning stuff. He's written a lot of books, though, like 22 books. No, I've he's very prolific. Short stories, yeah. But, um, the one that came out this year, The Only Good Indians, is supposed to be really good, um, but I haven't read it yet. He's also on the list of people I might read all of. Uh, but anyway, Mongrels is, like I said, to some extent, it's what if werewolves were real. But it's also sort of tangled up with, um, it's never explicitly stated, but it's clearly, the, the the werewolves are clearly, they at least look like Native Americans, right? Yeah. Um, when they're physically described. And Stephen Graham Jones is, he is Native American, he's, he's Blackfeet. And not all of his writing explicitly deals with that, but a lot of it does. And uh, it works in a way which I, I probably don't quite have the right tools to completely pick apart so i'm not going to try to right but right. there's i think a really interesting sort of metaphorical 
way of dealing with, you know, people who are outcasts and who have been all, you know, to some extent feared by society, right? We're understood as predators, right? Like you, you know, you know, watch out for, don't go out alone at night, Martha, the Indians will get you, right? You know what I mean? Um, And it's, it's not one-to-one. Like, I'm not saying that. He's not saying the werewolves in this book are representative of the, I'm not saying that, but it's, there's a lot of sort of interpenetration between these two ideas that I found really fascinating. Um, And also it's a good horror story. Like it's a, it's a, it's basically a road trip story, but it's also uh, really unsettling in a lot of ways and unpacks, it does some of the gritty, you know, this is, you know, okay, we assume that werewolves are allergic to silver, so what does that mean here in 2016? How would people use that, right? It does some of those questions, which I think can get kind of boring after a while, mm-hmm. but it does such a good job of rooting it in the lived experience of this family of werewolves, right? Um, rather than, again, like, you're, you're not sympathizing with the werewolf hunter, right? You're not, you're not watching him solve these problems, yeah, right? It's, yeah. it's about, this is what this, this is what this means for us, like the things we have to worry about. And again, the really, well, I'm not going to describe it because I'm really not going to. But like, <laughs> there's questions about what things they can and cannot eat when they are humans, and what things they can and cannot like. Th- they have less control over them when they're worked out or whatever. But like, there are rules here about what will happen when they shift back, and like the very physical realities of what that does to them, right? And the right. clothes they can and cannot wear, and that kind of thing. And it's uh, so again, it's not. Oh, let's. Again, it's not not the way some of these things are, where it's like, oh, well, if vampires are... It's not like Blade, right? Which is like, let's going to industrialize, like, bloodbaths and whatever. Which is fun in a different way, but it's not as serious, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. By the way, have you seen Blade recently? This is totally off topic, but have you seen Blade (laughs) recently? Man, I I beseech you to go watch the first, like, 15 minutes of Blade. Uh, You know, I don't know if I've ever seen... A more incredible piece of art in my life. Blade is <laughs> wild. The first fifteen minutes of Blade are incredible. It is the nineteen nineties, like in a in a short, like like it is. It's like what you need to understand the nineties is you need to watch Clueless and you need to watch the fifteen first fifteen minutes of Blade, and then you got it. That's that's all of it, right there. Oh my gosh, uh, that, Wesley that a... Snipes is impossibly cool in a way which also is so absurdly ridiculous. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. I'm going to bleep this, but the line he uses before he kills the big bad guy, it has nothing to do with anything, but like he's got him. He's doing like the one cool line before the kill is, right. and I'll bleep this, some fucker's always trying to ice skate uphill, and then he kills him by <laughs> kicking him so hard he explodes. It's wonderful. I can't describe uh, how incredible Blade is. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been- It's not a good movie, but it's- it needs to be in the Library of Congress it's if it been, isn't already. <laughs> it's been so many years. Yeah, I will have to revisit that. I, I, I love that you picked the perfect compliment to explain the 90s. Because you're right. Clueless is definitely one of the Rosetta Stones of the 90s. Yeah. But I wouldn't have picked the first 15 minutes of Blade. That's incredible. Well, I think, like, we might think The Matrix, but The Matrix is actually, like, a lesser version of Blade <laughs> in terms of this this aesthetic <laughs> that I'm trying to get across. Like, all of the trench coats and black leather and absurd kicking is, is very important in The Matrix, but Blade is more of that, and also there's blood everywhere, and Wesley Snipes is just incredibly cool. <laughs> yeah, Wesley Snipes... As, he's yeah. also deeply absurd. <laughs> no, the, he, well, he is also, yeah, he is a great representation of... What the '90s believed in, I I get that just from yes. memory alone. That's amazing. Uh, I would also note that no piece of Marvel casting has made me happier than the fact that apparently they're going to get Mahershala Ali to play Blade in some future project. Which oh, is oh wow, uh, perfect casting. Yeah, he's it is he's exactly great. Correct. I I do like that Marvel has decided they don't care about like 
recasting people from the TV shows and the movies because they're now they're making so many things that they have to right like you've used all yeah. of the actors so yeah you have to reuse <laughs> you know the ones you've already had in bit parts and bigger parts that makes sense to me yeah the only one I can think of is Alfre Woodard who is in both uh, Luke Cage actually right uh, actually in, um, that's why I thought uh, of... Civil War very briefly yeah I... yeah but yeah I, I also they, they the Marvel Movies exist in a sort of a loose canon now. Marvel, uh, uh, sorry, the Marvel Netflix shows rather exist in a sort of a loose canon. Anyway, this is not a MCU <laughs> podcast, but um, yeah, Mahershala Ali as Blade is is perfect. It is because he's both cool enough to do it and also like a little bit more of a mature actor, so that they can do it without it being quite as ridiculous. But he'll still be cool enough to do it. You know what I mean? Totally agree. <laughs> no, I think he, he can do most things to be honest. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the greatest actors working right now, so I'll watch him do anything. I And even if it is just an absurd vampire slash fest, I'll watch it. I'll enjoy yeah, that. Yeah, I'll definitely see it at least once. Uh, I don't know. I had a couple other books I wanted to at least briefly talk about. I don't know if you had anything else. I just went on like a five-minute MCU <laughs> rant. So if you've got <laughs> and about Blade. Uh, this is a podcast where we talk about Blade now. Yeah. Uh, this is actually what we this ch- podcast is. We literally is. are changing um, right now. It's going to be the big, we're going to call it the big, the big readcast, but it is going to be like a minute-by-minute analysis of blade for the next four years <laughs> only blade one two not even the yeah Gilbert no Toro we're not movie, even getting to the, the other comics, crap just forget blade. ryan reynolds we don't care about him forget jessica beale she's dead <laughs> to us okay we're dealing with the pure the pure form isn't chris christopherson also he's the guy yes, right? yeah yes, he is. i mean how he's the, yeah he's the mentor it's... Oh, now you've got me doing it god <laughs> um no the only thing i would say is when i look back over my my list of books, which is, it is such a crazy scattershot. I mean, there are a few authors I haven't read that stand out as like, I'm glad I kind of got around to them. Finally. One of them is Tove Jansen. Um, she's, she's incredible. Um, I read the true deceiver and, um, the summer. Yeah. The summer book. I was right. They both take place on these little kind of like, you know, Nordic islands and one's in winter and one's in summer. I read one in winter and one in summer. And they're pretty much perfect books. They're just about – and they're not like the best books I've ever read. But they are perfect for what they are. And I'm really glad I discovered them. And a couple other people that I had never read before. Weirdly enough, I like I had never read Samuel Johnson or James Boswell, his biographer. And there's an incredible audio book that basically splices together – their two texts about going to the Hebrides. They both wrote a text and the audiobook splices it together to put the relevant sections in dialogue. And it's one of the best audiobooks I've heard, period. But it, 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 one of my goals for the next year, which I'm sure I won't do because, again, I can't do anything systematically, I'd like to rectify my, <laughs> my huge Samuel Johnson hole that I've had in my kind of English literature person you know, biography forever because I, I, I loved what I read. Um, and I love what I know of Samuel Johnson. You know, he says things like, you know, as far as like kick a rock or free will to like, kick a rock and be done with it. You know what I mean? Like, it's great. <laughs> the other person that I wanted to highlight, there's, there's so many more. I'm really happy with the books I read this year, but honestly, the, the book that came out of nowhere that totally kind of knocked, knocked me back a few paces was it has the cheesiest title. It's called love in the blitz. It's by this woman, Eileen Alexander, who, um, wrote letters to her boyfriend and then fiance from basically the beginning of World War II. They met just beforehand. Um, through the end of it, essentially, they're they're not together. She's at home in London during the Blitz, hence the cheesy title, and he's variously, you know, 
in England with the army and then shipped out to Egypt. And they're both like Cambridge, you know, intellectuals. He went on to have a pretty successful career as like a lawyer politician. But it was a really great year to read a book of letters from someone who is vastly wittier and more intelligent than I am. But she writes letters during this great the greatest lockdown in the 20th century, right? Like, it's the blitz. You have to black out every night. You have to ration. You have all of these restrictions on your life. I mean, that was even the metaphor, of course, when the pandemic started was we need to have a World War II mindset, right? And um, it, it was like, I, I guess I wanted to highlight it because I, I actually listened to the whole thing. I didn't read it. And I, I love listening to books. I have no prejudice against it. I know some people do because... They're actual Neanderthals. Because <laughs> they're wrong. Yeah, because yeah, they're so wrong. I mean, reading, yeah. Anyway, but uh, one of the beautiful things we don't talk enough about with audiobooks is that it's sort of, um, for at least for me, I, I'm not the world's quickest reader. I, I'm probably medium, but I, I read quickly enough that even big books, I sometimes get through, you know, in a few days or in a week. And so they don't take a lot of real estate in my year. You know what I mean? Like, unless it, unless you're Charles Taylor, and then you owned me for two months. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, you know, these books kind of, I, like Jonathan Trenchman and Norrell, I'm pretty sure I read that in basically a week. And what was beautiful about listening to Eileen Alexander as I walked or drove or ran was that their letters she wrote herself, so they're first person, and they're very bubbly and witty. But you kind of, like, you have an appropriate longevity for a book that takes place over four years, you know, because it really is about what it means to try and keep hope alive in the midst of personal and national deprivation, which was something I found truly pretty profound this year. Um, I mean, she's smart. She says a lot of smart things. She's worth reading, you know, in a year that's not a pandemic year. But I was very grateful for that book in a way that I, I thought I might be grateful for other books, but that one sort of became this this kind of comfort and boon in a way that books aren't usually for me anyway, but that I certainly wasn't expecting this random, you know, epistolary memoir to be a genre that I never read, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's kind of me maybe going back into gushing mode. But I, I, I highly recommend it, either read out loud or not. But it was certainly a book that I think people would enjoy reading this winter as we continue to have, you know, various lockdowns and so forth. But be, um, beyond that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure I have a, a ton else, to be honest. Yeah, I have, I think, four more things I want to talk about, most of them pretty briefly. Let's do um, it. Okay. So, one, I want to put a bit sh- big, bit of a shout out to a book I just read a few days ago. Uh, the British title is The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, and the American title is The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Card- Hardcastle, which is objectively worse. Uh, I don't know why <laughs> yeah, they did that. agreed. But... Uh, I just want to, you know, I really, I appreciate when we have a genre that's really well-trodden, uh, like we've talked about, uh, and I just, it's good to see yet another example in the sort of tired genre of Gosford Park meets Quantum Leap. <laughs> oh my gosh. Really? <laughs> yeah. It is a, a murder mystery set in, I, I'm not exactly sure on the time, but like early 20th century British manor estate, where our hero is wakes up in the body of one of the people and realizes he has eight days, which is all the same day viewed from different perspectives to jump into different people's bodies and solve the murder. Oh my gosh. 
it doesn't quite work in places like I, I it's his first book first of all yeah. and if my first book is that good I will be very happy so I no no significant criticism towards Stuart Turton here but uh, I just I appreciated the cuts of it. I think I stumbled on it in like an economist review or something like that like two years ago and put it on my wish list and was like why haven't I purchased this yet I immediately like I do that I'm like this is a fascinating book I will put it on a list and not buy it <laughs> ever like, that's dumb <laughs> yeah just buy the book yeah. like this is one of those books you're like yes like, it's like 10 bucks buy the book uh and so I read it in one shot on Christmas Eve which first of all uh it's like a 420 page book and I read it in like three hours okay <laughs> wow <laughs> not quite yeah. but fast yeah like four, <laughs> four hours maybe um because it's it's that much of a fast read. It's not, you know, again, it, uh, some of the world building, I think, doesn't quite work. He tries to answer some questions he shouldn't have, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in a way that Piranesi doesn't, uh, that, you know. Uh, but uh, it's just a blast. And I just, again, I appreciate, we're going to make a book which is Gosford Park and Quantum Leap and time travel, which is not explicitly, but like, and more explicit time travel than you get in Quantum Leap. That's what we're going to do. And, uh, you know, I want people to write books like that, so. <laughs> Amen. Um <laughs> Another one I want to briefly talk about is Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn trilogy. It's not really a controversial opinion to say Brandon Sanderson's a good fantasy author, but I have been resisting saying it for years for some reason. Yeah. He never did anything to me. He's a nice guy as far as I can tell. <laughs> but I have a weird uh I have a weird prejudice against uh fantasy novels, even though I love fantasy novels. Right, same, I am always same. prepared to hate them, which is I mean, I love fantasy novels, but Something about, oh, it's a popular book, it's published by Tor, it comes in those purple yep, paperbacks, yep. you know what I mean? I'm like, ah, this is going to be garbage. And often it's because it is garbage. I think it's a self-defense to be fair. mechanism. But uh, this isn't garbage. It's a rollicking good time. I'm not going to sit here and call it high art. Uh, you have to be willing to roll with the inherent silliness of the premise, which is there's a bunch of people whose superpowers are they can eat different kinds of metal and that gives them superpowers. <laughs> you just got to sort of let that soak into your body and then just roll with it from there. Uh, it's inherently silly, but he's incredibly precise with his magic system. That's what people always talk about. Oh, Sanderson's got such great magic systems, which is another right. one of those things that makes me it sort of throw up because I'm trying to read a novel, not an RPG source book. I do read RPG source books sometimes. <laughs> like I, it, but I... <laughs> not, not the goal. When, um, yeah. But... But actually, it's great. He has, in each of the three books, he has some big twists that come at the end, like you're supposed to. Like, And it turns out that the magic also works like this. And every single time I said, yeah, no, that's right. It does. Like, I hadn't thought of that, but that's correct. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. And that's really cool. Like, that is actually legitimately very cool. And uh, the main character is really fun. Uh, at one point, also at one point, this is a minor spoiler, but in one of the books, she gets really badass. And she's like a five foot four girl with like an enormous like broadsword she's swinging around. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm a simple man. I like that. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> but it's just a really good time i really enjoyed it i was actually i mean i'm not i'm not this is not a profound series and i don't think he thinks it is either but uh it was a lot of fun and i cared about the characters and i liked the ending and i liked all the big twists and yeah he's not the greatest prose writer his characters do a lot of metacognition yeah which is something i do in my writing a lot too so i, I think in a lot of ways i uh I, I also was like, right, this is the sort of thing I need to not do as much of. Although, again, if my first book is as good as Mistborn, I'll be very happy. I'm not saying that. But, uh, you know, his characters will do a lot of like, so here's why I'm thinking this. And here's what I'm trying to communicate with why I'm thinking this. And people do that in real life, but it is pretty tedious to read after a while. But he's got a lot of fun ideas. And, again, the, the premise is inherently silly, but get past it and enjoy it. And I think you'll you'll like it. it. They're Also, each of the books is like 800 pages long. So, you know, you get to really buff your page count while, <laughs> while doing it. Um <laughs> 
I had two other things I wanted to say. This is just Bill giving opinions now, I guess. But I love it. This uh, is I also great. read Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy at the same time. I read one of them, another book, the first Mistborn book. The second Mars book, another book, the second Mistborn book. And I did that, um, which was some real total whiplash and probably not actually the right way to do it. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the Mars books are very, very uh, famous. Two of them won Hugo's, and the third was first was nominated, so... Uh, N.K. Jemison is still the only person to win all three Hugos for the same series, but both Kim Stanley Robinson and Chishin Liu, uh, I think, have done did two out of three. Um, and uh, it's Kim Stanley Robinson is the hardest science fiction I've read in a long time. I mean, if you think uh, Three Body Problem is hard sci-fi, let me introduce you to KSR. Yeah, uh, I have heard that. But um, it's all very believable. I can't evaluate the accuracy of it. I am not a uh, areologist, is the word he says, which is geologist, <laughs> but on Mars. Ah, it's very good. Oh, my gosh. Um, but it's all very believable, like the way the terraforming process goes. So it's a book about terraforming processes, but it's also a book about the political like evolution of Mars over about 150 years. Yeah. Uh, and it's really very fascinating. He is a little bit frustrating at times. So I, I think that although I think these are definitely important books, and I'm glad I read them. I don't know if they're going to stick with me as much. And I think that when the inevitably HBO tries to do a five season miniseries about it, they're going to have some trouble because... Uh, he's really interested in his characters, but they're actually not very interesting. <laughs> yeah. And so he's trying to do a literary thing where he'll like, let's really dwell on the psychology of this person for a hundred pages, but it's all pretty basic stuff. And you know, he does that a lot. And also all of his women are either like sex kittens or like frigid. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, and I don't want to dwell on that too just much. Like life, that becomes though. less true as the book goes on. Just like how yeah, life is. But there's a lot of like, there's a lot of time in the first book in particular as they're all on the spaceship going from Earth to Mars, which is just like, let's look at this love triangle that's intended to partly represent the major themes of the book because Kim Stanley Robinson is an 18-year-old creative writing major <laughs> in college. Uh, which is a shame because a lot of the rest, like the, the political stuff and the science fiction stuff is fascinating. And by the end of it, I do start to care about some of the characters. Right. I'm not, but like, it's not until like halfway through the second book that I start to care about any of the characters. Wow, yeah, and that's um, not He great. does have a really... A really great uh, uh, d depiction of grief in a couple of the characters, though, as the world they thought they were building is not the world they're getting. He does do a very good job with them trying to reconcile it. Because the other big sci-fi concept is about halfway through the first book, they figure out a way to fix aging, basically. Oh, wow. Uh, which is, he, he, he deals with all the science fiction ramifications of that, uh, and it, it leads to a population crisis on Earth. It's a whole big thing. But he also, it's a way that he can have his... It's a way you can have George Washington at the Civil War, basically. Gotcha. Right? You yep. can have the people yep. who were the first the first people on Mars still be involved then as it's a whole society. And it, it uh That's it works. a cool idea. Like, uh, That's a really cool idea, yeah. Yeah. So it's a uh, I would say it's definitely worth reading, but I there's parts of it and I think you're gonna roll your eyes and that's okay. Um I also uh, Francis Bufford loves it. There, bam, got the Spufford reference Boom. in. Wham! Did it! Yeah! At the buzzer. <laughs> Well, don't worry. I I uh, finished. I started it years ago and didn't finish it, but I finished Red Plenty this year, and it turns out this author who we talk about all the time, who I like a lot and <laughs> haven't ever disliked, I really liked his book, Bill. It was great. Isn't that weird? <laughs> it was just a surprise, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, so I just have one more thing I want to say. Yep. <clears throat> I think, and that's just uh, you mentioned uh, an audiobook as a sort of a real estate right like having a larger presence in your life because of how long it takes yeah to read it, uh and so on right well basically so i listened to a couple audiobooks this year but the big one is i listened to the lord of the rings on audiobook mm -hmm. for the first time um and i also realized i hadn't actually read the lord of the rings all the way through maybe since high school actually like i'd read the oh, first wow. book a while ago but yeah. maybe it's been that long since i actually read the whole thing um 
you know, uh, spoiler alert, Lord of the Rings is a good book. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> a hot take we're going to have here. Tolkien, colon, actually good. Yeah, killed uh, it. But uh, <laughs> uh, you're surprised, based on everything you know about us, that that's our opinion, uh, dear listeners. You had no idea we would feel that way. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, two things. Briefly, one, the audiobook uh, reader does a good job, but he sings all the songs, and it's a mistake. I don't know why they did that. He doesn't do a very good job, and it's uh, a mistake what people keep doing, by the way. I also picked up, and haven't finished it yet, but the Andy Circus recording of The Hobbit, and of course, he's wonderful. He's great. Right. And then he sings, yep. and you're like, Andy, buddy, no. Stop. And it's a bigger problem because, like, the first song, or the second or third, like, the first few, it's okay, because it's just, like carefully with the plates but then he tries to do the uh far over the misty mountains one and they use the tune from the movie oh, which is the best no. thing in the movie and he's trying to give it a lot of gruff rah, 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 and he's yeah. just not up to it and it's just actively painful to listen to um i i'm gonna hot take here don't sing the songs in books don't do yeah. read them they're poetry you, you wouldn't have a tune originally i mean it's cool if you set them to music later like, I actually discovered a whole bunch of people while I was doing this project who have set Tolkien songs to music and is a whole world of them, and many of them are fantastic. Um, there's this gal, Adele McAllister, who is, like, she's not, any, she's a like an accountant or something like that, and in her spare time, sometimes, will get out her guitar and write music to, like, Tolkien songs, and uh, they're all incredible. Uh, that's so like a that's like a that's for... a that's a subset of fan fiction that I I feel like I can get very behind. Like not to like be too snooty about fan fiction in general, but for the most part, it has no appeal to me. But this is the kind of fan fiction the world needs. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's great. Like uh, so, there's there's a group called it's got some kind of absurd Latin name, and most of what they do is not very good. But they did a version of Durin's song that I was passing to all of my friends a while ago, or the song of Durin that Gimli sings. And then yeah, this gal Del McAllister. Uh, does like you know we're gonna do an entire 12 minute rendition of the entire uh song of Aaron Dillon L uh and it's wonderful you know it's fantastic it's definitely the canonical tune in my head for some of these anyway so Lord of the Rings is great I don't really have a whole lot more I'm gonna say about that or we're gonna talk for 45 minutes the only other thing is I wanted to relay a funny thing that happened to me so again I I bought the audiobook and it just starts at the at chapter one along expected party and then at the end it does the concerning hobbits prologue after you finish the book. Yeah. And then it reads all of the appendices to you. Uh, not the ones that are like, this is how you write Elvish, because obviously that wouldn't work. But like the story of Aragorn and Arwen. Right. And then all of the history of the whole freaking world, which I'd forgotten how much of it there is. Oh, yeah. There. A lot. <laughs> but uh, let's just be clear. I'm listening. I'm, I'm put it on as I was going to bed one night, like, because I'll drift off and who cares, right? Like, I finished the book. And no, I stayed awake getting just super invested in the history of Fornost. <laughs> I got to tell you, man... There's an untapped well of stories up there in Arnor. Like, I, I'm going to write, like, hardcore Lord of the Rings fan fiction now, which is just, like, I'm going to just really delve into, like, the story of Aeorl the Young or some of the Numenorean kings who are more fascinating than I remembered or all the weird internecine squabbles in Gondor. Like, it's a lot more interesting than I remembered. Like, I remember the Silmarillion being full of interesting stuff and then the Lord of the Rings appendices being Aragorn and Arwen and then, like... Gimli and Legolas. Some history right, if you care whatever, about all right, the yeah. kings of whatever. And like, no, it's super cool. Or if you're me, I don't know how cool it actually is. But yeah, give me a, you know, the Amazon miniseries actually is taking place at a time which could be interesting. But what we should actually do is like a Game of Thrones thing about when Arnor was split into three countries and the Witch King kept going after them and which ones fell when. We should do that. We shouldn't, actually. There's not really that much there. But it would be fun. I would like to write it. No, I, I would not. Can you imagine actually trying to do that? Like, no, what a it would, for yeah, project. it would be doomed. <laughs> it would be totally doomed. But I, I agree with you that... I, I read it, you know, several years ago now, but I, I also, one, was sort of 
happy that Tolkien was as good as I remembered him, and in some ways better, of course. You know, classics almost yeah. get better with rereading. But I agree. I remember. I read the appendices, and I remembered like little tidbits, like Legolas and Gimli travel together and do fun things. You know, like. But I, I, I forgot that there was so much meat that. Yeah, that gives you your first – in some ways, it's like the gateway drug to the Cimmerillion, right? You're like, oh, I want to know yeah. more. And then Tolkien's estate was like, great, uh, great news. <laughs> There's dozens of more <laughs> books we've out. now published. There's a lot of this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did want to – so before yeah. we – um. Before we close up shop, I, I did, you know, I know we, this is maybe our longest year in reading podcasts yet, but are there any books that you're looking forward to in 2021 that are already on your radar that you want to quickly sort of highlight or hope that you get to? Yeah, so I've got kind of a, a weird scattershot of stuff on my TBR shelf right now. I also bought a raft of things from the New York Review of Books sale, um, because I think I told yeah. you this offline. Uh, a writer I think we both like, B.D. McClay, uh, did like a whole tweet storm about, here's a bunch of my recommendations from this sale. And I was looking at it, and I was like, you know, I'm a I'm a relatively well-read guy. You know, I, uh, right. I have a books podcast. I read more books here <laughs> than most people do. I'm not claiming to be a major scholar, but like yeah. I read books. I have heard of one of these, exactly one of them. <laughs> There's like 30 books here. And I don't mean, oh, yeah, I've heard. I mean, literally no idea what that is. She <laughs> says, and you've all read The Dud Avocado. And I said, have I? I don't know what that is. You can tell me that book was about anything and I would believe you. The one book I've read, I've heard of is T is, is The Goshawk by right. T.H. White because of H's for Hawk. Yeah. Uh, that's it. That's the one. So I felt like that was clearly an, a big hole in my literary education if I'd heard of none of these books. So I bought eight of them. Um, we'll see how they are. So I'm going to do that. I forgot you bought eight. Yeah. Um, I think it was eight. I'd have to double check. Uh, I'm also going to read... Um, so I'm going to finish the Three Body Problem trilogy, which is actually called Remembrance of Earth's Past or something, yeah, which is like almost it's, Proust, it's, but not quite. I know, it's I definitely a play on Proust, but he doesn't... It's not, I don't know. I don't get the Proust thing. I, I mean, I haven't read Proust, so I, don't, I guess I don't know. I uh, You got me some Gene Wolfe that I'm definitely going to read. And then I inherited this year... My dad died several years ago, and the books are slowly making their way to me because my mom realized I'm not going to say no to any of them. <laughs> There's going to be a day when the science fiction shelf makes it here. I'm going to have to uh, buy a new house. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yep. yeah, I think you've seen that shelf. I have. It's, most of that, I think, is going to get to me at some point. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Uh, anyway, and one thing I got was Winston Churchill's six-volume history of the Second World War. And it just, you put it on your shelf, and it just stares at you, right? It's bright red. <laughs> And I'm just going to have to read it, I think, next oh, year. I think man. I'm going to start in July. I'm going to try to do one a month. So, yeah, that's that's probably the biggest project. I'm considering trying to read 104 books next year. That's probably dumb, but I, I did the math to see how much I'd have to read a day. So if I do that, I'll read way too much. But I'm not sure I'm actually going to do that. Yeah, that'd be a lot. I don't really have time for that kind of I know. Well, that's I know. Yeah. Well, well like you said, I think uh, off the podcast recording, you read more words this year. Like you read Like, you read more of actual, like you know, English words, but less books than last year. Yeah. But I, I have the same problem. I, you know, as much as I tell myself that, I, I, I find the book counting very helpful as like a, it's fun, right? Like I don't feel super competitive or like I don't feel super ashamed per se if I don't hit what I want to hit. But it is like, I, I used to do this with movies. You know, I had a watch list and I, I, I liked tracking what movies I watched. And I it is just kind of a fun way to do it. At the same time, I, I have um, I have regressed every year that I started tracking. Like I started tracking in I can't even remember now twenty uh twenty seventeen probably, and I read like eighty three books that year at least because I didn't count everything very well, and then yeah it's just gone down. It's like seventies sixties maybe just the fifties this year, which it sounds maybe like so pretentious, but it is sort of just a funny uh a funny parenthood trend. 
Well, I've, I've held pretty steady uh, in the three years I've been tracking of upper 50s, lower 60s. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh, it would be a lot to go up to that many books. It's probably a bad idea. It's, but I'm it's, thinking about it's it. It's interesting. Idea. I really would do stuff like just read all of Master and Commander, right? Because they're yeah. relatively easy reads. Like one, obviously, one thing you'd have to do is not try to read 104 books called a secular age, right? Like right. No, but, and I, well, and I think pe- the people I know <laughs> in my life personally and online who read more than 100 books, it's hard because they, 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 they talk about like a secular age. But I mean, they. Yeah, they they read all of um, you know uh, Rex Parker the crime series, right? Like they're reading that stuff as well because yeah. they're reading for entertainment, which is the only reason that you would ever do a hundred books, right? If it's not for entertainment, at some point that's just masochistic. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I'm not sure I'm actually gonna do that, but that was that was a thought I had. No, I think goals are I think goals are fun. Like I said, I I think it's fun to have. Like my my goal is to try and hit sixty even this year. I have a, a few more days to try. I, for books that I'm looking forward to next year, just real quick, because you mentioned it, I'm hoping to yeah, become. I was going to ask you. Yeah. I'm hoping to become further. Uh, I lost the word. Yeah, further initiated in the cult of Gene Wolfe. Um, who, yeah, I read. Mm, yeah. I, I actually had read part of a book of his a, a year ago or two, but this year I finished. You know, um, the Wizard Knight essentially, and it's I loved it. It's such a weird, beautiful fantasy book i it's there's no way to really talk about it without you know talking forever um beyond that i feel like i don't have a lot of agenda i feel like i kind of want to go back to some of my old favorites you know i, I penelope fitzgerald muriel spark i have a i have a new tove jansen i want to dip into um i really i would like to to go pretty hard on samuel johnson i, I got the oxford world classics kind of compendium of his writings but at this point, at least, I, I, there's not like I feel like last year I had some some really specific projects that I actually didn't get to, and this next year I, I don't have any of that, which I think is kind of I don't know I'm feeling kind of excited about just maybe, yeah, just kind of going wild and and picking up whatever's on my you know nightstand and just going with it, but we'll see. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, I'm I'm probably gonna try to do. If I do end up trying to read that, that many books, I'll probably try to pick a few authors and complete them. I've been thinking about uh, Stephen Graham Jones, which is like 22 books, so that's probably too many. But I've also been thinking about um, Victor Laval, actually, and Connie Willis. Yeah. I've only read one book of, but loved it so much. Uh, the Doomsday book is on my shelf right now. It's going to be read soon. And people, she's having like a, she never went anywhere. By the way, did you know she holds the record for the most Hugo wins? Yeah, yeah, it's actually, yeah I, I was, yeah, yeah. I was a pretty big Connie Willis fanboy mm. for a while at one point. <laughs> So, I uh, I've only read the one book, but she's also getting like a, a lot more people are talking about her right now, or maybe it's just a couple of current affairs writers that I follow, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> uh, I was thinking about doing a bunch of uh, doing a bunch more what? Connie Willis, trying to read all the novels. Which um, which novel did you read by or, her? Was it Passage? Which one? Did I read you? the Curious Incident of the Dog and the. Oh, nighttime. that's right. Yeah, was that in high oh, school? I'm sorry, that's not the name of no, the no, book. No, no, it's not. That's not the name of the book. Yeah, that's not the name of the book. That's the Mark Haddon book. Yeah, uh, to say nothing of the dog. Yeah, to say based nothing on of the Jerome dog. K. Jerome. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, that was, uh, last year or the year before actually that I read it because, uh, you and, and friend of the podcast, Christy had, and particularly Christy had said, you got to read Connie oh, yeah. Willis. She and I said, sure. And then didn't yeah. because I don't know. No, I, I came uh, to Connie Willis through Christy as well. And yeah, I, I, I have always really enjoyed her. And so I picked that up a couple years ago and was like, wow, I love this book. <laughs> I know. And so I, know. I, uh, I'm going to probably do some more. Uh, and there was one other writer I was thinking about completing, and I have forgotten who it was. That's really bodes well for this project. It'll, it'll happen. That's the only one you're going to do next year. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, 
Oh, Kazuo Ishiguro, which is not that many, but I was thinking, because I, I, I liked, I, the Unconsoled was odd, but I, I mostly enjoyed it, and uh, Remains of the Day is, of course, uh, ridiculously good, so yeah. I was thinking about reading the other four or five. You, that's that's who it was. I'm blanking on it, but the the one that is Arthurian, you should definitely check that out. That was good. Um, yeah. The Buried Giant, maybe? The Buried Something Giant. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, okay, well, cool. Okay, well, so you you'll do your project, and I'll I'll just read a bunch of you know children's fantasy novels before reading Sources of the Self by Charles Taylor, like I always do. <laughs> so random. <laughs> well, another very real possibility is that I will set this project, read all the right number of books in January, get depressed, read nothing in February, and then never read another book for the rest of my life because I didn't finish this project. Yeah, that's a thing that could happen Woo-hoo. too. So, <laughs> well, you know, you gotta keep reading for the big read cast, Bill. That's like a, it's like an accountability thing. That's true. How else will we film? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how I'm gonna finish. I do actually want to read Sources of the Self by Charles Taylor, which I suspect has maybe a lot of my favorite stuff from a Secular Age at greater length. But I, I am worried about trying to do it without you because I thought it was maybe a shorter book. It's like 690 pages or something. <laughs> so I don't understand. Like, how does how do you write not just one, but two philosophy books that are over 600 pages? Like, I don't I don't understand how that's possible. And the worst part is like, it totally made sense for a secular age, so it probably makes sense for sources of the self, which I'm. It's I just it's not. But like. <sighs> It's, it's, it's going to destroy. Oh, that reminds me of something else yeah. really quick. I'm sorry. I've got to stop. But so, you know, we were talking about Charles Taylor, about how he, the book is very long, but he tries not, but he tries not to spend too much time on any one thing. He yeah. says, you know about yeah. this, right? A lot. So it worked really well on that. A book I didn't like as much was Mary Beard's SPQR is a decent book. It's a history of, it's a 10,000 foot, like history of Rome from the ancient myths of time to... I forget exactly, but like 350 or so. Yeah. And uh, it's very readable and it's fun and I learned some things, but it just doesn't have enough detail. And I walked away saying, what do I know about Rome now? Nothing. Nothing I know nothing about Rome now. What I know is a vague feeling about what life was like, which I think is what the project was, honestly. So well done. But uh, I mean, I wasn't expecting to be an expert on the history of Rome in no, a 500 yeah. page book. Like, I understand that's yeah. not a thing. But like, I got out of it and I was like, what I, this was a fluffy, pleasant experience. And boy, howdy, do I still not remember who was emperor of Rome when or why that matters. I know a little bit more about the whole Julius Caesar thing, but that's it. I, I also, cool. I also was, have uh, to stop, but I, I will time. say, I, I, um, I didn't continue reading uh, Toombs's History of the English People or whatever that is for the same reason. I read like the first chapter. And within the first chapter, there was like eight different peoples he introduced, which I wanted a lot more on. And then he kept going, and I realized, oh, this wasn't just an introduction. You, you're done with them. I need to read something else. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, like I apparently, I want to know more. And I, I think, unfortunately for Rome, I mean, at some point, you tackle Gibbon or you don't, right? Like, that's yeah, that's the unfortunate yeah, reality. I, although I, I should talk a lot about Gibbon, and I guess he's just, you know, he's he's doing a lot of. Uh opinion work in it which because it was right. like 18th century or whatever yeah. that's what you did and so it you know it's by all accounts it's it is useful information about rome but it's also a pretty exhaustive psychological picture of edward gibbon uh and I, <laughs> i'm not sure i'm up for that right now i mean charles <laughs> taylor kind of had the same thought right so okay we gotta yeah. we gotta break before we <laughs> do a four-hour podcast <laughs> <laughs> oh man all right well 
Um, we read a lot of good books this year, is the takeaway. Uh, I think Joel said this, or I mean, assuming we're done. I felt like we were done. Yeah, we done? we're, we're done. We're out. <laughs> I read I read some more books. I could. T- <laughs> I know. Well, honestly, um, I was going through my list and I was like, I didn't mention Brides Had Revisited. I didn't mention Dennis Johnson, which was life-changing. I didn't. And it was like, oh, okay, but this is the problem. Is It's not just like me listing the 60 books I read and telling you why each one was yeah. really great. <laughs> I reread Dune, and I was like, wow, there's a reason this book is memetically famous. Every other sentence, like, steers itself in your brain. Yep. It's not that good prose, exactly, No, but, but I, like, I know. Man, was he good at a phrase. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect summation. Good at a phrase. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so thanks for listening to the Big Readcast. This marks the end of our <laughs> third year podcasting, um, which is kind of bonkers, uh, it really. It definitely is. Uh, we've done... The number of episodes we've done is, uh, at this point, sort of a fun sort of game of some sort of bizarre dream logic that I title the episodes with. It does make sense. Every big read is an episode title, and then every small read is its own episode title. And the N.K. Jemison, which was three books and therefore three podcasts, is only one episode because it was one read. And then also sometimes we do other things. <laughs> so I don't know how many episodes we've done. But uh, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Um we hope you enjoy uh, listening to it. If not, God, you're really a glutton for punishment if you're still listening Amen. at this point because there's no like cultural cred from listening to this podcast, I don't think. There will be in 30 years when we're both incredibly famous. You'll be like, yeah, I was in on the ground floor of their <laughs> weird meandery book podcast. Yeah, I, yeah, of course I was. I was one of their 14 friends. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, uh, we've been having a lot of fun doing this. Uh, we've already announced this, but next we're reading uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Americana. That episode will come out probably sometime in March or April. And uh, we don't know what we're reading after that because I think we usually don't decide until after, you know, as we're recording the the, uh, the episode on the previous one. Because sometimes you don't know what sort of mental state you're going to be in, right? It's true. Sometimes you're like, yeah, well, this book was just a book we read. Like, it was good and it was glad we talked about it, but it didn't. And sometimes I'm like, I read Black Lamb and Gray Falcon. I need to sit down for a while. <laughs> 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 so uh, thanks again for reading. Joel, as always, thanks for doing the podcast. And um, you too, Bill. Y'all have a safe and hopefully a better 2021 there's nothing magical about january 1st 2021 but i'm still hopeful it will be a better year in many ways for all of us amen so have a safe remainder of your holidays everybody and see you guys next year so bye joel all right see you later bill Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. <laughs> no, but uh, as always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.